Hey, thank you so much for clicking on this video and giving it a shot. It really does mean a lot to me. In today's episode, I speak with Matt Davidson. He's a lieutenant at a local fire department. He also talks about his history in the military, what he used to do in the Navy and the Marine Corps. And he also discusses quite some detailed depth about having a child with cancer and what it was like going through that, some of the things they had to face. Also, we dive into a little bit of conspiracy theories, which I love, and also uh, some other interesting topics as well. I really hope that you enjoy it. Break this up into little segments. Don't have to watch the entire three and a half hours all at once, but please enjoy. Hit that like button, leave a little comment, subscribe to the channel, and hit that notification bell whenever we make new content. Thank you so much. Well, man, how you been doing? Great. Well, I mean, all things considered. Oh, yeah, I'm still recording on me. Are you? <laughs> I should put it on you now. There you go. <laughs> oh, all things considered. I mean, I think I'm fine. Uh, everything that's been going on in the world, I've been kind of just bringing it back to the basics, taking care of the family, awesome. working. It's been a Both few years jobs, since we've actually thing. hung out. I know. So we used to do <clears throat> go dirt biking together. We went a couple times, and obviously I taught you a thing or two that you, you, did. you really you, picked up. My skill level is so much better now because of the things that you taught me. <laughs> You're welcome. And, you know, it's just something simple, simple that I could do. I could do that for anybody, as long as you let me ride your bike because I don't have one anymore. But let's go ahead and talk about your past, especially like with dirt biking, because I mean you rode in the Baja 500 and the 1000 and the 1000. Yeah. And the 1000 was the most recent one, or was the 500 the most recent one? The no, year? the most recent one was in 2019, pre-planned gimmick. Um, <laughs> it was the Vegas Torino. Mm. <clears throat> it's an off-road race. Obviously, happens in Vegas. Starts in Vegas, ends in Reno, and was uh, I did it as a solo effort to kind of give a nod to uh, the kids, all the kids with cancer mm -hmm. and everything. So I decided to race the whole thing by myself, where typically you would have two or three guys on a team. <clears throat> and uh, went 608 miles in one day. That's about 99% off-road. So it's through the desert, mm -hmm. next to Death Valley, 114-degree temperatures. Took me 14 hours and 45 minutes. And in the meantime, while I'm on the bike, I end up calling in a medevac for a, a pretty popular Instagram girl that got hurt. And we rolled up on her and just so happened I was a medic. And she How'd she get hurt? She crashed. <laughs> <clears throat> yeah, I came around the corner and the bike was on the ground. She was all wadded up and it looked like a yard sale. Just, <laughs> the tank was off the bike, but there were trophy trucks coming behind us. Dude. So I had to stop and get her. EMTs there were like, hey, uh, nobody can call a helicopter unless they're a paramedic or, you know, a supervisor. I'm like, well, give me the phone. So we ended up calling a helicopter in for her, but that delayed me a little bit. But still, I finished. Took about 78 kids' names on a helmet. They all signed it and gave me stickers and stuff like that. So what did that feel like? It was awesome. I mean, I'd always wanted to solo a big race like that. <clears throat> I had my fantastic wife and two of my very good friends with me, so... They were basically my pit crew, kept feeding me gas, working on, there were parts falling off the bike by the end of the night, so they were they were just trying to keep it together. But I, I heard a fun. rumor that you threw up while you were riding. I did. It, oh, you really did? Yeah, I did a little bit. <laughs> Verp. <laughs> <clears throat> yeah. That's awesome, dude. You get, like in the wrong races like that, you get mm. brain fade. So it's in and out. Like, I'm super sharp, I'm riding, oh my gosh, I'm doing so good. And then, you know, the next... 30 miles after you pit, you're like, <laughs> <laughs> you can, you're just trying to not die. <clears throat> but it was a cool race. We hit speeds, sometimes 106 miles an hour in like a dry lake bed. Dude. So it's flat, 
and there's nothing there. So you just wrap the motorcycle. I got in trouble. I got to the next pit, and my wife, who was able to see the GPS and the live feed, she was like, you know how fast you were going? I'm like, fast as it go? I don't know. 106 miles an hour. I was like, cool. <laughs> On a dirt bike. Right. Well, what was the bike you rode? <clears throat> what was it? I built a... Uh, I bought a 2017, so that was in 2019. Mm-hmm. It was just like a leftover that had been found in Chillicothe, Ohio. Mm-hmm. And it was, uh, so it was still brand new. It was in the crate. It was a 2017 Honda CRF450X, which is basically the bike that wins the Baja 1000 mm-hmm. all the time. So I bought it, brought it home, took it apart, put it back together, tested on it for about six or eight hours, and took it to Vegas and raced it. That is awesome. It was fun. So what is your what is your passion about riding dirt bikes and racing? <clears throat> when did that start? Uh, that was soon after I got out of the military. It was actually kind of a coping mechanism. Um, separation. When you get out of the military, a lot of guys talk about separation and how you don't really understand how you fit back in and everything. So um, always been a motorcycle enthusiast. I've been raised around them. Uh, my dad's always had them. Um, I've had one now since I've been 16, only a couple of years where I didn't, <clears throat> and uh, kind of went out with some buddies and started realizing that, hey, I can I can do this in the dirt, and then um, that took off in like 2000, I guess, and then by 2007, I was winning, winning the state, so I moved up through C is like amateur. Mm-hmm or beginner almost b is like i guess more amateur or intermediate and then a riders are pro or professional not professional but expert and then double a is pro so i ride in the a class okay so but i moved all the way through from c all the way to a and basically they told me i had to move up a couple years in a row <clears throat> so i ended up winning the state in 2007 and 2010 so with winning the state what did that do to your I mean, your ego with riding. Uh, I mean, who wouldn't be proud of that, right? Mm-hmm. Trying to stay grounded, though. But, um, you know, even though when I was doing that, I still would go to, like, the youth races in the morning. I'd get there at, like, 8, 9 o'clock in the morning. I didn't race till 12 o'clock or 1 mm-hmm. half the time. But I would go out there and just make sure that I, I get to see the kids that were coming up. And I still see them now. They're racing against me and beating me. But awesome. <clears throat> I would go still kind of keep it to that level. Obviously, you form relationships. You have a race family. Mm-hmm. So I would kind of find kids that I kind of liked that I'd go out there and try and be a good example. And I'm not drinking beer or whatever on the start line before the race or whatever, you know, but just trying to give them, pump them up. That's awesome. Yeah. So what has been your most favorite race you've ever done? <clears throat> Vegas Arena would probably be the best just because it was the it's the the last experience that we had. Mm-hmm. It was a huge accomplishment, a lot of planning and logistics that had to go into it, and then it went off basically without a hitch, with the exception of helping Jackie. Mm-hmm. Um, second of off, second off, I would say Baja 1000 in 2000. That was 2009 or 2010. I got recruited to come out there and ride the night section. So I was on the bike for like 310 miles or something like that in the dark. And it was a blast. Really? Yes. Yeah, it's terrifying, but yeah, it's a blast. <laughs> so, <clears throat> so explain to me what does it feel like riding on a bike 
300 plus miles in one sitting? What does it feel like? How do your arms feel? How do your, your abs feel? How does your butt feel? Because you're, you're getting hit. I mean, yeah. you're going to be either seat jumping or smoking your butt on the seat. And you're going to wreck. Your legs. Yes. You're going to wreck, no, no matter what. It's just how extravagant. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, I mean, there's some conditioning to it. Like, I'm going to go do the Baja, not Baja, but I'm going to do Vegas Sereno again next year. Really? So... In the year and the months leading up to the one I've already done, and the one leading up to the the one I'm gonna do, I'll drop twenty twenty five pounds. I'll start riding a lot because there's no replacement for seat time. I'll ride two, probably two times a week, and then uh, just you kind of develop some muscle memory as far as state when you got to stand, when you got to sit, <clears throat> how to preserve. Plus, the bike setup's a lot of it, too. I mean, you, you take a lot of strain off your body by having the suspension set up the right way, the bar height the right way, getting steering dampeners. Making it comfortable for yeah, you. Yeah, you just make it comfortable. My seat, I spent a lot of money on my seat on the race bike. Really? Yeah, but it's got, like, it's called Sturgis foam, and then it's got memory foam on top of it. Ooh. <clears throat> so, so much money did you spend on your seat? Almost $1,000. Good night. Right. Sent it to California and had it built. So how much money did you spend on just your race bike for the Baja one, or for your for your Vegas? Vegas? Yeah, base. Uh, I probably have fifteen thousand dollars in the dirt bike. Now, that's not money out of my pocket. Mm-hmm. I mean, I got some sponsorship from a, quite a few people, even local and that's awesome. Internet or like nationally, because they figured out what I was going to do. Mm-hmm. So the one in two thousand twenty-two, I think. We're going to try to team up with Leukemia Lymphoma Society, and they're going to use me kind of as a media tool. Like, you know, if these kids can endure mm-hmm. these cancers and things like that, then here's a guy that's going to go out there and you know, put his put it all out there. Mm-hmm. So hopefully that ends up being a good a good marriage, if you will. I'd like to keep doing it. but Well, because your bike sat over <clears> at the Honda shop over at Whiteland Ro- or Tracy Road. Yep. Did it not? Yeah. Okay, because I went it was in on one display. day. It was on display. Yeah, I walked in there, and I'm like... That's my Davidson's bike. Right. No way. Like, that's so cool. And I was right. sitting there touching it. And they're right. like, hey, don't touch that bike. I'm like, I know this guy. <laughs> they're like, I don't care. And I'm like, you can ride it now if you want. <laughs> I, I'll take you up on that. Yeah. yeah. It's, it's fun. It looked fun. Mm-hmm. It just looked like a nasty bike. I just, yeah. I, used to, I used to ride. It was built for war. Yeah. <laughs> it was built for war. Right. Ready for war. Right. I just, I used to ride. I grew up riding, and my skill level was never that um, X bike. Extravagant. It was never like anything impressive to anybody. But you did all right. I got to ride with you, which to me was the coolest thing ever. Oh, and then we jumped that road. Oh yeah, yeah. You made me jump that road. I had no idea we were going to jump it. <laughs> oh yeah, we were down at Stony Lonesome. At Stony Lonesome, and you made yeah. me jump that. I see your bike go flying. So here's if anybody's wondering, I'll go ahead and tell. I'll tell my part of the story, and then you can tell the real story. Okay. So, so we're riding. He's like, hey, when we come around, he you stop me before we even get to it, and you're like, hey, you're going to see me make this turn. And I'm going to be, I can't remember if you told me you're going to be at the top end of second gear or the bottom end of third gear. It was one of those. Probably the and top. I was, that's what I'm trying to think, too. <clears throat> and you said, I'm going to punch it. You do the same and just go. So I was like, okay. <laughs> and then so we get around that corner, and I see you just take off. And then I'm like, I'll take off. So I start going, and then I see you go up in the air, and you're up, and you're up, and you're up. And I'm like, he's still going. <laughs> and then right. I, see, I go, and then I'm looking down after I hit that jump. 
I looked down and there's a road underneath us. Right. And then you landed perfectly. And then I just I bottomed out right at the other part of the hill. I'm like, oh, yeah, you like cased that. it. And I still, I mean, I still kept going, but dude, I I remember my eyes were like this big. Well, I remember you pulled up. Your eyes were that big. You looked like you. <laughs> Had just like seen a ghost or something, and you're like, "Let's do it again." Dude, that was Let's so do it much again. Fun. That was so much fun. <clears throat> yeah, that that was a huge confidence booster for me. Oh, sure. Riding. Yeah, there's so many times, even you know, hell now, I still ride up to stuff like on a motocross track, and I'm like, oh, I don't know, man, I don't know. I mean, I'm not a motocrosser, <laughs> but then once I finally get the cojones to do it, and then I'm like, yeah. I could like do conquered that fear. And they're like, bro, it's like 20 feet. <laughs> <laughs> I, I tell you, like that meant a lot to me. I still remember it to this day. Right. And just riding with you was so much fun. I learned a whole, I learned a whole new slew of things. I mean, even like, like those really, mud, you probably won't remember this, but those real muddy parts and part of the, uh, where all the ruts are. Like it was right after of, the jump. Yeah, it was right after the jump. Yeah. Instead of picking a rut to go in, go across diagonally, right. create your own new one. And I'm sure. like, oh my gosh, like. Survival That's, skills. Those, yeah, are, those survival. are things that get learned. Yeah, especially <laughs> was, in those races. That was just like that was really cool for really really cool for me. And right. then um, that hill you wouldn't let me climb. I was wanting to climb it. Do you remember that real giant hill that has that rock or yeah. you know, that tree that tree stump that's uh -huh. in the way that you have to jump up? Yeah, I recorded you doing that the whole time. And they I call that like, Coxie's Hill. Yeah, that looked awesome. Yeah, I wanted to do it's it, but more fun going down. Really? Yeah, because you jump midway off the hill and you don't land until the bottom. Uh, <laughs> I'm okay. Yeah, you okay? I'm okay. <laughs> yeah. But I learned so much, and I had so much fun riding. It was definitely it was a great workout. But just just sitting there riding with a buddy that's pretty good. Like I I consider you to be very good. But riding with somebody who's much better than you to give you tips and tricks and sure. improving your skills. Like we, we went over to uh, where was that place that you took me to, and I ended up flipping over the berm. Oh, that was Moto that, Supreme. Moto Supreme. Yeah. And I was taking that berm, and I flipped right over it yeah. and like, went over the handlebars. You were so excited that you wrecked. It was awesome. It was, I wrecked doing something cool, not right. something stupid. But. Right. I came around the corner, and you were still hanging on upside down <laughs> with your helmet looking back at me upside down. What's he doing? <laughs> That's funny. I had so much fun doing that. But. Uh, so, so moving on from dirt biking, let's talk about your experience in the military. So go ahead and you were in the Navy. You started out in the Navy? Or, I started out in the Navy. You started out in the Navy. I mean, technically, when I left, I was still in the Navy. Okay. But. So I, go ahead and explain to me how that works. Okay. Yeah. So. Um, trying to, I've explained this a hundred times to the layperson, but I always, every time I explain it, I want to make sure that I'm like trying to hit a different area. So I'll explain it to you in like the layman's terms. Mm -hmm. I joined the Navy. <clears throat> Was excited to be score high enough to be in, put into a, what they call Navy corpsman. So from now on, we'll con, we'll call the corpsman the medic, mm -hmm. right? So I be, get through corpsman school. I do okay. I get to pick my duty station. <clears throat> I'm going to go to a naval hospital, right? So I get to the naval hospital and I go to Charleston, South Carolina. I'm in a naval hospital. I'm literally like an orderly or whatever. So there's different sides to being a corpsman or a medic. You have the blue side, which the blue side is like guys that are on ships, guys that are in Navy, uh, Navy hospitals. And then there's a green side. Well, the green side guys end up being with the Marines as a combat medic. Now you, you take yourself out of it. I had always thought I maybe wanted to do green side, but my past, like as far back as like stupid high school, had kind of followed me. And I don't know how or who. 
got the idea or if it was Navy, another corpsman that maybe was that Charleston because I was a swimmer in school, I was a diver, I was cross-country runner, I ran track, I played golf, but I never hit like football, basketball, baseball, mm -hmm. right? <clears throat> um, they found out. Somebody did. And there was a, a recon, uh, what's it called? The indoc, the recon indoctrination. So they're like, it's basically a tryout, like selection. So I got invited to go to the selection. There was like five or six guys that went or whatever. Obviously, I killed the swim, killed mm -hmm. the run. I did probably the minimum amount of pull-ups that I had to do. <laughs> I was lanky, though. I was like yeah. six foot, probably 176 pounds, 180 pounds. You sent me some pictures, which I'll post up right. in this. But. Well, that was even heavier than the ones that I showed you. Dude, you look, you look badass <clears throat> in those. Anyway. Those cool. So I went through the end doc, and... Uh, the selection, I got selected. Mm -hmm. So I got, I had already been through the green side training, but I was stuck at the hospital. So they pull me in and they're like, hey, there's this thing, it's called 8427. We want to put you in this 8427 program. I'm like, what's 8427? I'm already in 8404, which is the billet for or MOS for green side medic. So is that a rank? Is that like your part of your rank or? 8404 is just like your designation. It'd be like, a grunt is an 11 Bravo in the army mm -hmm. in the military. It's or the Marine Corps. It's 0311. Okay. So 8427 was a, a designation in the Navy rank. And I'm like, what is it? And they're like, well, it's special amphibious reconnaissance corpsman. And I was like, is that new? And they said, yeah, we're just now standing it up. So this is 1992, maybe beginning of 1992. Mm -hmm. I'm old. Yeah. <laughs> God, that's how old he's. <laughs> 48. So they send me through what they call the pipeline. Mm -hmm. So for, I go home for a little while. I'm all excited. I'm going to be with these Marines and everything else. Well, I didn't understand that Special Amphibious Reconnaissance Corpsman meant I was going to be with a recon unit, which is in the military or in the Marine Corps. I always say that. In the Marine Corps and in the Special Operations community, Force Recon and Recon Battalion are considered Tier 3 but move up sometimes to tier two. So in comparison, tier one would be like DevGru, i.e. SEAL Team 6, okay. um, Delta, things like that. And then Rangers and um, some of the airborne units end up kind of floating between tier two and tier three. Because the Marine Corps then didn't have a tier two, constant tier two. Anywho. So this was going to be that tier two. Yes. Okay. Well, I'll, t I'll tell you how it evolves. Okay. All the way up to 2006. Oh. So I get there. <clears throat> I go home for a little while. I go to Panama City Beach, Florida, and I get stuck in Marine Combatant Diver School. I'm like, okay, this is a little bit intense. Like They're trying to drown me, <laughs> and I'm swimming thousands of meters at a time. So in order for us to get out of that school, you had to swim 10K. So not only are you becoming like a, a scout swimmer, you're also becoming a combatant diver. I want to look up how much is 10k in miles? 6.4. <laughs> right, American. <laughs> right. So you had to, you had fins, and everybody thought, oh, you have fins. That's great. Well, no, you got to keep your snorkel in your mouth the whole time. You have to wear your mask the whole time, and you're in full camouflage uniform. Oh my gosh. So 10k. So anyway, get out of that school. Uh, you know, I'm 
feeling like a man, right? <laughs> go to straight to jump school, Fort Benning, Georgia, right? Go straight to jump school. Then from there, you go up to Little Creek, Virginia, and you go to Amphibious Reconnaissance School. So I don't even remember how long that was. It was a Little Creek. Um, was probably the most professional class that I'd ever been in in the military. I mean, like, look, you guys made it this far. Now we're going to teach you, like, the juice, right? Mm -hmm. the, the, the meat and potatoes of the job. Leave there. I think I went home maybe again. And then got to Camp Lejeune, North Carolina, and was with Recon Battalion. Um, in the process, so Recon Battalion now and 2nd Force Reconnaissance are starting to take members out of each group. There's this other new unit that has stood up in, in the 2nd Marine Division. It is 2nd Small Craft Company. Everybody's like, what is that? So it's Riverine Assault Craft Boats. It's the CRRCs or the uh, Zodiacs. And then they had Combat Rigid Raider Craft. Or no, that was the CRRC. They had uh, just a regular Raider Craft, which is a Boston Whaler with a bunch of hopped up motors on them. That's cool. So they took reconnaissance guys from Force Reconnaissance. They took guys from Recon Battalion, and they took these this group of people that they had selected and put them all together. And it was to stand up and do deployments overseas that had, like, riverine access and to do war on drugs stuff in South and Central America. That was still Clinton's. So real, so real quick, <clears throat> was this a program <clears throat> that was already in existence no. in another branch of military? Like oh, well, branch? I mean, the uh, so it would be SWIC, like in the Navy, but those are, those are guys that are directly involved with SEALs only. So this group that we were standing up was going to be what is now MARSOC Raiders. Oh, that's cool. So we were the beginning of that. And they and it is an asset that not only can deliver like force reconnaissance. Well, force recon's gone. It's gone in 06 when it switched to MARSOC. But they can put raiders in. They can take elements of um, battalions of Marines, like scout swimmers or scout snipers or whatever, and they deliver them and put them into the country where they need them to be. Mm -hmm. Sometimes MARSOC is a supporting element, and sometimes it's the driving element. It's like MARSOC sometimes will preside, provide security for SEAL teams while they're operating, or sometimes SEAL teams will be like the quick reaction force for stuff that MARSOC's doing. Mm -hmm. So the Navy works really well together because technically the Marine Corps is a department of the Navy. We That's like to say it's the I mean, men's department. You didn't department. tell me that. The menace department? The men's department. Oh, the men's department. Menace would work as well. <laughs> that would be pretty cool. So in a long, long story short, I was found by the Marine Corps, adopted by psychopaths, taught their ways, and expected to be their nanny. That is so cool. Because you do about everything as a corpsman. You're a psychologist. You're a marriage counselor. You're a trauma surgeon <laughs> stitching them up from them making dumb decisions. And then, you know, sometimes you're cuddling with them in a sleeping bag because they have hypothermia. So mm -hmm. my job, though, is to still be a shooter. I was taught all the ways to move through buildings and ships, small unit tactics in the jungle and everything else. And then if someone was hurt, then my secondary was to peel off and start being my real profession. What was some of the duties and aspects that you learned from being a part of that yeah. that you use today being a firefighter oh well we talked about this before mm -hmm. i got to work with some pretty cool dudes now 
honestly, just like everything else, there's there's some guys that are you get some POSs mm-hmm. in there. But I was influenced by guys that I can name them. I Staff Sergeant Freddie Sizemore, probably the hairiest man I've ever met in my life. Hardcore dude, really good at what he did. A leader, one hundred percent a leader. From, like literally from the front. If he wasn't gonna do it, he wouldn't ask you to do it. He wasn't a, in the typical sense of a Marine mm-hmm. where he would say, hey man, tear down that wall with your hands. And he would expect, no, he'd start tearing the wall down with his hands too. <laughs> and then I had another, a sergeant, uh, Zonka was his last name. And uh, he was another guy just like it. I mean, if, if we were getting muddy and bloody, he was doing it. So I learned a lot of leadership traits that I'd like to see in people. Um, I don't necessarily see them in the fire service all the time because it's just a different leadership style. They say the fire department's paramilitary. It's not. I mean, if you've been in the military at all, there is rank and there's structure and there's things like that, but the leadership styles are not the same. That's something that I took a class by, uh, I don't remember their names anymore, but they were talking about how this, the fire department is supposed to be paramilitary, and the first thing that other guy said, he's like, it is 100% not. Because there's certain punishments that you would get in the military if you made, like a simple mistake, that it's just a slap on the wrist, or it's just swept under the rug. So the Marine Corps and the military when I was in was different. If you had a grievance or a mm-hmm. difference, sometimes no matter rank, there was a process to start where you just go into woods and whoever came back least bloody won. And then the argument was over, you have a beer about it, and it was over. Obviously, softer, mm-hmm. kinder, gentler generations that we've had since mine. It's, uh, you, you couldn't do that now. No. Or if you got in trouble, you didn't get a write-up, you didn't get a verbal, you just went and dug a foxhole for like three hours. And then you come back and like, you learn your lesson? Yeah, fill it in. Come back. <laughs> Yeah, that doesn't happen anymore. <laughs> I wonder why. <clears throat> right. That was another question that I was going to ask. I, I want to keep back on the, the discussion on what you used to do in the military, and then afterwards I've got it written down. I can ask about that. Sure. Um, so with you being basically part of the beginning stages of the MARSOC Raiders, yeah. what did that mean? What were things that you remember happening that they were like, we're trying to figure out, we're trying to get our feet in the sand? So obviously there would be steps in different directions. What were, what were some things that you guys learned, like, hey, this is working, this is what we can keep moving on? Or what were some things that you're like, this is not working for us and we're going to have to take a step back? Um, initially, I would say the first thing that probably stands out is that we had our initial kind of way we built it. There was just little elements of recon and little elements of the boat or a small craft company. We would try and augment, like we floated like with 3rd Battalion 6th Marines. So we tried to take Lima Company in 3rd Battalion, 6th Marines, and turn them into a boat unit, right? And that still happens now within battalions of Marines, but they've got like scout swimmers, and now they call them raiders. So they build them at a battalion, not a battalion level, yeah, battalion level. So we tried to bring these guys in initially and just make them like boat savvy. Mm -hmm. You know, they got to wear kind of the grungy uniforms. They got to wear the boonie caps. They got to do a bunch of that stuff, and it didn't work. Because at heart, they were grunts with a very minimum amount of training. When if you forecast it now to what Raiders are, what I understand Raiders to be is these guys are consummate professionals. They've been to all the classes. They get special schools all the time to augment their unit, you know, small unit, even down to like a platoon level. And I think that we learned that 
taking a company or a, no, yeah, taking a, a company like Lima Company and trying to turn them into boat people. I, I imagine that's why Marsoc has gotten so much bigger and the Raiders have gotten so much bigger is because there, while there are still battalion levels, they've built Marsoc to be its own entity. Mm-hmm. They can augment with battalion people, but um, I think we learned early on that we couldn't just take regular grunts without making them somehow a reconnaissance operator and giving them the basics. The basic trainings yeah. of, of special forces kind of stuff? It's They say special forces. That's kind of a blanket statement for everything. Mm-hmm. In the Marine Corps, it, when JSOC and everything, we were actually special operations. So it, it was a bigger blanket. Okay. And then... With that, what was one of the first missions that you guys were given? Ha! Funny thing is, is uh, you know, a lot of reconnaissance was about. It's about being like the eyes and ears of the battalion commander, being able to go out undetected, gather information, mm-hmm. do things like LPOP, which was listening posts, observation posts. You're really kind of just laying in the same spot, trying to figure out people's habits, bad route, guys, routes habits. of travel, routes of travel, things like that. It's about like bad guys or just people just. Whoever they needed us to do it to. <laughs> they weren't always bad guys. But um, uh, where was I going with that? Oh, so the very first operation was real life. We floated in September, I think, of 93. Would have been August or September of 1993. So shortly thereafter, we were sitting off the coast in the Indian Ocean uh, up against... Uh, Somalia, and uh, they had just shot down the Blackhawks in Black Hawk Down. Mm-hmm. So our initial th- mission was going to be that we were going to go in and do sniper, counter-sniper stuff. We we're going to look for snipers like in buildings, mortar emplacements, things like that, just observation. And so our secondary mission was always direct action. So they shoot down the Blackhawks and everything. Brian, or Brian, Bennett. Mm-hmm was with 10th Mountain, I believe. So 10th Mountain was there. There was a bunch of Rangers and Delta and everything, and obviously you understand what happened mm-hmm. there. That was a total screw-up on the Army's part. So they shot down these guys. These dudes are pinned down everything. Well, the Army, just like every other branch, they want to go get their butt, their buddies. So mm-hmm. they were unassing the base, going out into the, uh, out into the city to get their guys that were pinned down. In the meantime, the Somalis are coming around the other side, like in small groups, but, you know, six guys in polyester pants with AK-47s, and it's their turf. They know kind of what they're doing. So they were going to overrun the airport, which was basically our command and control, plus the stadium, mm-hmm. plus the port, like so we could get ships in, supplies, things like that. So they started to come around. They were coming through the ends of the fence in Somalia or in Mogadishu's airport. We had shacks and stuff down there, and we called it Walmart. We'd go down there and trade like our uh, – MRE stuff, and they'd give us like polished coral or some gourd mm-hmm. that they had fashioned into some kind of pot or something like that. So they were coming through Walmart at the end and just basically tearing up the Saudis because it was a UN operation. The Saudis were in the United Nations. Yeah, yeah. Okay. Yeah. So the UN was there. Saudis were in, for whatever reason, the Saudi took the, the uh, guard posts, like the elevated positions. Mm-hmm. They were killing them. So now we're going from LPOP, counter sniper, sniper stuff, to 
Get your gear. Get on the helicopters. Oh my God, they're gonna they're gonna overrun the base. So we're like, what is going on? You know, how so, how long? How old were you when this happened? Uh probably nineteen, getting ready to be twenty. Oh my gosh. Yeah. Yeah. So we were there like hundred and six days after mm -hmm. that happened. Like literally had to go. Like they sent somebody out to get our stuff and bring it back in. And the funny thing is, is a little side note. So finally, everything's kind of chilled out a little bit. We've got, like, I think it was this dude from the Army. He's trying to show us around. We've been sleeping on the ground for, like, a while. He's like, hey, uh, see these Connex boxes over here? Ones with the air conditioners in them? Yeah, that's not that's not you guys. That's, like, uh, the Air Force or, you know, probably the Germans. They had cool stuff in the French. But you see this other Connex box over here with the fans in it and everything? Yeah, it's not you either. Like, what are we doing? He was like, hey, uh, the engineers put a uh, roof over the top of this bombed-out parking garage. That's you guys. <laughs> we were like, perfect. The Marine Corps. Obviously, <laughs> worst living conditions, terrible budget, and the expectations of many. <laughs> <laughs> I have an understanding. Yeah. I have a slight understanding. You probably do. <laughs> so, with you going through with the whole, I can, I'll just say, the Black Hawk Down stuff, what did you guys specifically do? Well, re-secured the uh, weaker, weaker parts of the airport and the port. Uh, it took a lot of us. We end up, ended up augmenting with mm -hmm. Lima Company because they were floating with us, 3rd Battalion, 6th Marines, Lima. So we ended up augmenting that, kind of securing everything back down, kind of quelling some skirmishes, if you will, exchanged some gunfire. And then parts of us went out and secured a, a small part of the route for the guys to come back. And that was, that all happened in like 14 hours or something like that. I know in uh terrifying, it's what it, I was about to ask about that. I know that's gotta be extremely scary to go through something like that. What was going through your mind? What were your emotions? And then how did you react to those emotions? You know, I, uh, I told somebody this the other day and it was actually Mason. Oh, we were yeah. talking about, cause Mason did the same thing that I did mm -hmm. with not to the Marsoc or not to the reconnaissance level. He was with the, a, a battalion. Mm -hmm. And uh, I told him this, and I, he, he was like, oh, my God, I've never heard anybody say that before. You know what I thought the whole time? I felt like, I, I'm like, I don't, I don't know if I'm ready. I don't know if I'm prepared. What, have, what else could have I done? I'm on the helicopter. We're going in. And I'm thinking to myself, I don't know if I have enough stuff. Like, these guys are getting tore up in the street. We're already getting kind of a situation report. Mm -hmm. And uh, I was terrified to be under-prepared. And I, I, I do that now, all the time. It's one of those things where, um, you know, I've talked to people mm -hmm. about mental health and things like that. And they, they said, yeah, that's probably the time when it, it actually affected you because you were like, that's a raw, visceral fear. Like, you have no idea. Like, if, can I do this? Can I perform? Am I going to lock up? What am I going to do? Right? And these guys might get killed. These are my buddies. These are my friends. So I think that was fear. If people say they're not scared in that situation, they're either mentally incapacitated at some point <laughs> or they're lying because I was terrified. And that's only happened a couple times since. You know what I mean? Like, that visceral raw kind of fear, but we were, we performed, we did well. It wasn't pretty at first because it was like, Oh my God, what do we do? 
we didn't have any direction hardly at all. It's just kind of got off the helicopter, put ourselves in a 180 degrees semicircle with the beach behind us. And we're like, which way are we going? So with, with going through that and moving in, you guys are moving in towards the city, obviously, or which, where, which way was it? It would have been West moving in West. Yeah. So you guys are moving in that direction. What do you, I know it's been a little while for you over sure. 20 years. What was going through your mind as you're scanning your field of vision? Do you remember? I thought everything was going to kill us. <laughs> <laughs> I'm looking up. I'm looking down. I'm looking. I'm looking in my pack. I'm looking. I'm like because normal people never go through these situations. And what I wanted to do is I, like, I watched the movie with uh, the was it Chris Kyle the sniper that kid pulled up that grabbed up the RPG and was getting ready to use it and yeah. that just sparked in my mind. I've obviously never served in the military. That's not what Chinda saw me for a second. I've obviously never served in the military. Man, I look so fat. Oh God! I've never served in the military, so when I hear stories of children doing these things, that is very real. It is, and I was going to ask you about that here in a second, if you're okay with talking about it. But when I watched that in that film, that kid pulls up that RPG and he's ready to shoot, and he's just praying that he's not going to shoot it because yeah. he didn't want to kill that kid. Yeah, I was sitting there thinking like this. I remember seeing reports of. Uh, military members killing kids. And I'm like, oh my gosh, that's horrible. These people are crazy. Like, yeah. our guys in our military are killing kids. And I had no idea that They're not these the kids were put on. There's, I've been told by other people that these kids will get paid to do this stuff, or they're just told, like, hey, your family will be taken care of. It's their culture. It's, And I was wondering if you could explain that a little bit, if you're okay with talking about that. Explain it. I don't, I mean, I don't know how to tell you what they're thinking. Mm -hmm. I just know that. They're very patriotic like we are. Mm -hmm. um, we were looked at as an invading force. But remember, there were two factions that were there. They were basically warring tribes, people who wanted to have control of the food, money, everything that was coming in from the UN. So anybody down to teenagers, they were willing to die and fight for that. because. But that's the way they learned. You, mm -hmm. It is such a third world country over there. It is, it's probably one of the most disgusting places I've ever been just because it's, it's so dirty and raw and tribal and I don't even know another good word just to describe it. It's, but the, it, it's not uncommon. And some of the theaters of operation that they're operating in now, I mean, I still pay attention to, to, you know, current events. I still have people in the military that I talk to, um, talk to the guys when they come back because I'm a huge mental health advocate. Mm -hmm. And uh, it's where they're coming out of in Afghanistan and Iraq, it's the same way. It's all for God and their God and mm -hmm. country. And uh, everybody's expected to participate. Sometimes even the women and children as shields even. So it does happen. It did happen over there. There were kids you know, shooting at the, the Rangers and the Delta guys that were out there and they got shot and we encountered a few things. I won't go into that in a ton of detail, but, uh, but it happens and it's scary because I was about to ask that. Well, it's say for instance, you know, like we talked about the revolutionary war. Mm -hmm. We had 17, 16, 15 year old kids here that were picking up rifles and, but they were fighting for independence. 
So I think I can relate to it a little bit. It's just in our psyche, that probably doesn't make sense to a lot of adults because it hasn't happened for so many years, mm-hmm. even though an 18-year-old can still join the military. I just read a report or a story yesterday about a nine-year-old kid who tried to enlist in the in the military in the army, and they said no, we're not going to recruit children. But he kept trying and trying, and he ended up being one of the drummers. Really? And oh, in the Revolutionary War. The Revolutionary yeah, War. I don't doubt he that. He ended up being one of the drummers, and was right. he's been in he was in multiple battles. Mm-hmm. A nine-year-old kid. Right. And I was trying to sit there and think, like, oh my gosh, that makes no sense to us, does it? It makes zero sense to us. But back then, I, there's a completely different dynamic on on that whole situation. Right. With you don't have to answer this. We can pass this question if you want. But was there a doubt in your mind when a person who was obviously young of age is holding a weapon? No. <laughs> okay. <laughs> well, is was there a doubt in your mind of this is happening? Like I can't. Un, I'm. Un, this is unbelievably chaotic. Okay. So, take it back to even the fire department, right? Mm-hmm. And this is a quote that I use all the time: When you are put under pressure. And you can use this as a training note if you ever want to. Mm-hmm. You will never exceed your expectations ever, but you will fall back to your training, a hundred percent. Your baseline training is what you do on your time off, right? Mm-hmm. So when I was in the military, we're shooting all the time. We're moving around things. We're we're doing mount situations like urban, like moving through buildings and things like that. When it came down, it came down to it, and and it goes back to some of the stuff that I've, I do now, right? I never expect myself to ex- exceed expectations, but my training should be to a level higher than anybody else at a baseline. And that's, dude, I just described a lot of special operations groups because mm-hmm. that's all they are. They train a lot. And uh, when it came down to it, I think they just reacted. They did what they were supposed to do. Now, when it's over, it's pretty heavy, right? You start thinking about, man, did we just do that? Like, did we just go through that? And then you, you think back, and that's when Zonka and Sizemore, those are the guys that would lead with us, and, and they would tell us that all the time. You won't, you'll never be better than your training. When everything's terrified, and you're terrified, and everything going around you is just chaotic, you will always fall back to a base level. Does it feel like just a bad dream at some point? Parts of it. I wish I could forget it some days. Um, it's part of life. I mean, I, I knew what I was getting into. It. Uh, I think about it all the time, but it's uh, not a bad dream. Just a necessary bump, I guess. What has helped you cope? Ooh, good question. Obviously, uh, we talked about the dirt biking earlier. Oh, yeah. Yeah. You know, I'm an open book too. So, um, so never, I got back out of the military, mm-hmm. was never a drug guy. Didn't do anything like that. Knew I always still wanted to continue to be probably a professional in some regard. Um, the fire department made sense to me because I was already a, a medic, mm-hmm. even though they didn't recognize me as a paramedic. You're not good I enough. Had to, no, <laughs> I had to use my GI bill. That was bill. something we just talked about last, uh, last, last shift. We talked about that. And I, I kind of forgot that. If you're considered a paramedic, a medic in the military, yeah. that you it's the it's the state for Indiana, it's yeah. the state board for paramedicine. It is different. Like, paramedicine is yeah. different than combat medicine for sure. Um, I I had already I did like a six week course while we were on we were back in Garrison back in the states, mm-hmm. and I got my EMT in like six weeks. 
So I had that to fall back on, but then I get back here and I'm like, what? I can't start IVs. I can't put you in chest tubes. I can't do all this, you know, all these other things. At that point, were you doing that in the military? Uh-huh. Yeah. I would like to dive a little bit into that after we finish the part of what cope, what you did to cope. So. Oh, so yeah. never came back and never turned to drugs. Um, obviously, being with the Marine Corps, I had a pretty healthy tolerance for alcohol. Um, that did continue for a while. You know, I still drink. I mean, it's not like I've completely got sober and clean for years at a time. Um, riding. I worked a lot. You know, every firefighter, once I finally got into the, I got out of college. I used my GI Bill for college. Got my degree in paramedicine and uh, got hired on the fire department. So three of them now. I've been on three departments. And then uh, a lot of firefighters will immerse themselves in work outside of the fire department. So mm -hmm. I worked a lot. Then I started having kids. So I had lots of distractions. So you, so you said a lot of distractions. So... Does that mean later on in life that it started to get worse to you because you were distracting and once you start to slow down, then you realize okay, so there's issues? Or what I did do, which was a mistake, and I'll, I'll tell people this all the time because, mm -hmm. like, there again, I advocate for mental health. I was never uh, evaluated nor medicated. I had no idea. I was one of those guys like, mm -hmm. you know, I don't need that. I don't need that. And then later on, these guys are coming back from Afghanistan and Iraq and they're blown up missing parts and I'm like man I'm nowhere near as bad as those guys so in 2009 a lot a big cascade of stuff happened the housing market crashed in 2008 I owned a company that was pretty reliant on new construction mm -hmm. I got divorced after catching her I assumed responsibility and and uh custody of a nine and a five-year-old and now I'm a single dad who just lost my business just lost my wife of 13 years 16 together um, and found out that six months later that I was gonna lose the house because payments had been diverted so I was kind of crushed by all that at the same time I'm like dude I gotta make this work I gotta I gotta figure it out so I ended up going to my primary care physician because I was not coping. I had like a full-blown anxiety attack at the station mm. at the firehouse. And uh, finally I went and got help and uh, put me on a couple different trials from different medicines and it really evened me out. So that's probably the biggest way that I cope now. And I remarried and she's fantastic. She's awesome. She is awesome. She's I, love, I love Stacy. She's hot too. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, but no, she evens me out. Uh, the boys are bigger now. We we got through that. Obviously, yes. there's another part of that we're going to talk about. Yeah, definitely. Um, yeah. So earlier you talked about uh, you uh, you probably can't talk about a lot of the stuff that you did. But earlier you said you guys uh, did reconnaissance, LP and OP OP on bad guys and good guys. What would that be? Sometimes we be didn't know because yeah. we'd be. Okay, so then later on, after we get back from Somalia, we do the West, uh, the Mediterranean cruise, the Med. They call it the Med. You float the mm -hmm. Med. We had been to Israel. We did a little bit of work in Bosnia. Um, we ended up in like Tunisia, Greece. And when we would go to those places, we would train other uh, groups that were trying to be like us. We'd give them like the American mm -hmm. tactics or whatever. Come back. This is funny. 
we got back after six and a half months. We were home for seven days. Everybody got, we demobilized, cleaned everything. Everybody got to go home if you wanted to. So we go home for seven days. Seven days later, I'm at Lake Cumberland and the phone rings. Now, mind you, this is like a bag phone, like an old school cellular oh phone, right? And it's like, hey, this is Commander Brown. No, Captain Brown. Captain Brown, I need you back at the base. We're like, what? I was like, man, who's you guys screwing with me? What's going on? He's like, doc, doc. I was like, oh, that's him. Oh, sir, yes, sir. <laughs> so I had about 48 hours to get back to Camp Lejeune in a Chevy S10 with the heater core going out in it. So I had to run the heater just to keep it cool enough. So I drove back to Lejeune and uh, put us back on the exact same ships in the exact same bunks. Put all the exact same gear back on it, reactivated the MU, which is the Marine Expeditionary Unit, and sent us to Haiti because Haiti was in a refugee crisis. And this was in 1994 or five. So we go down there, we basically invade Port au Prince, similar concept. The guys are withholding food and funding from the UN and the US, and they're trying to get a hold on who's going to be in charge of the country. So we go in there and basically slap them around. <laughs> And then we leave. So we come back. I think I went back home for a little while again. And then I switched to a Riverine Assault Craft platoon within Second Small Craft Company, which still had guys from Recon, Force Recon, and everything else. And they sent us to Panama. So we get down to Panama at the Jungle Warfare Center, and we we're going to train the Panamanians and like, I think it was Nicaraguan Army or something like that to go out and do, look for clandestine drug labs where they're like processing cocaine or mm -hmm. whatever, and then uh, routes of travel. So we'd be in the Panama Canal. I'd already been in the Suez Canal, so now I was running in the Panama Canal and some of the tributaries that go to it, and then we'd go south. Some One group of ours went to Argentina, and they're looking around for like routes of travel. So we'd board boats on the river, but the the, the boat was that we had was, I mean, had a 50 cal on the front and a turret had a Mark 19 on the back and a turret, and then it's got a 60 on each side, plus it's got, you know, it's basically this floating pill full of mad Marines. And <laughs> we would just board, and we'd run into the jungle sometimes and look for stuff. And so with the so sometimes you were asking, we were looking at good guys. We were watching the DEA. We had no idea. <laughs> yeah. That is cool. Yeah, watching DEA or an ATF. And Not, you didn't know it at the time? No. So you're just staring at these guys like we're literally like, laying in the go. jungle, like okay, oh three thirty in the morning. You know this. Did vehicle, they know? Huh? Did they know that you guys? No. Were... <laughs> That's government right there. Yeah. Right. It sounds like a miscommunication right there. Yeah. Yeah. So we go down there under JSOC, and JSOC was Joint Special Operations Command, and it was they took DEA, CIA, the elements of the military, mm -hmm. Tier One guys, Tier Three guys, and grunts, mix them all together, and turn them into this, you know go out and either find stuff, blow stuff up, or bring it back. <laughs> that is so cool. It was crazy. It just, sound, it just sounds nuts. It just, it's not unbelievable, but it just really seems like that would be an exciting time to be in the military. It was a really strange time because there weren't theaters of operation that were going on all the time that were on the news. You know mm -hmm. what I mean? You know, OIF, OEF, Enduring Freedom, and Iraqi Freedom. That's so media driven that you could see a lot of what was going on back 
we didn't have a lot of media following us around or, you know, there was no, there were, there weren't camera phones. I mean, I had a beeper. Literally, I had to go to a payphone, call somebody. <laughs> <laughs> like the first time I ever talked to my mom, I had a grandmother die while I was overseas. Not die, she almost died. But I was talking to her on like this uh, secured link where it was basically a chat room. And that was like high speed stuff back in the day. And now you know, I can do it on my phone. So I'm showing my age again. But the... Uh, there wasn't a whole lot of good communication about what was going on down there. And it was supposed to be, it was a cool time to be in because we're after the Cold War. We're after the first uh, the first push in Kuwait. That's over now. So now it's kind of like this weird time, like who's going to make a play, right? And then you've got humanitarian crises going on in Haiti, back up to Somalia, and then God knows wherever else. Plus, it was after the first attempt at the World Trade Center bombing. Mm -hmm. They had blown up the parking garage. Mm -hmm. So there were some key players over there we were kind of looking for. So it was a cool time, but it's just different. Medically, my other question, medically, what did you do while being a part? That's all right. It's only their ears will be blown. <laughs> right. Um, medically, what did you do during that time? What were some of the things that I'm sure anything and everything? I didn't but, have to do much. Really? Yeah, my guys were so good. I'm serious. I mean, cuts, scrapes. Yeah. Um, bag of fluid. Right. Bag <laughs> of fluids. Uh, I maybe. I think I put in like a, a chest tube, like where we were there, and it was mm -hmm. just it was actually a spontaneous pneumo. It wasn't even like traumatically related. Hmm. So it was a. Uh, that happens a lot in lanky, tall males. But um, I didn't. I didn't have to do much. I shot more than I did anything with medical. I mean, I was always prepared, mm -hmm. and that was like I told you, like in the background, that was my anxiety that I was not going to be ready. I was not going to be ready. So, a lot of stupid stuff, stitching people up after they get in fights, and mm -hmm. you know, and as far as being in theaters, pulling white palm. Like thorns out of people, oh. yeah, or black palm, black palm thorns. I got that mixed up with white locust, white locust, black palm. <laughs> Same concept though. It's like porcupine needles, and they'd get them in their arms and stuff, and I have to dig them out. A little bit of sexually transmitted stuff, but not usually. I usually give them a pretty good uh, brief before they went out on liberty. I've heard I've heard some really funny stories about stuff. Uh, guys, I'm telling I can't you, really uh, they can't make it pregnant. <laughs> or kill it like within 24 hours that's something's wrong with them I'm gonna go to the air force <laughs> my buddy of mine was in the air force and he'd tell me some stories about what they do and i'm like oh my god yeah can't like what people would do for a candy bar i'm just saying yes <laughs> it is nuts it's it's it blows my mind um depravity of humans <laughs> it's it's sad because there's a lot of things there's even a lot of humanitarian stuff that is, is up for discussion because i've heard people say stuff like you know, we have a lot of our own problems here in the United States, but I mean, I've I've been out of the country a couple times, and it's only been to go to like Mexico. Like I like to go to Cancun every year, but sure. I've been to Juarez a couple times. Oh, on mission, right? Chihuahua, oh, no, mission trips. Yeah, that place is disgusting. Yeah, like it's gross. Yeah, and, sure, if you can't see that stuff and then come back here and be like, man, we have got it so good, and then not get upset because people complain about it. Mm -hmm. What are you doing? People talk about how horrible it is here, but it's leave. 
Please, uh, not even leave. Go on, go somewhere and visit to see what it's like. I'll buy you a ticket to Juarez. You want to go there? I'll even take somebody. I mean, I'll drop them off at the border. I'll just drive them like you go there. I don't want to die. Right, I'm not going in there. Yeah, but it's 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 a hellhole. And there was su- open sewage in the streets. People yep. throwing their their buckets of poop and pee out. Somalia is the same way. It's, that's just disgusting. And and we've come so far. Uh, I'm I'm the one talking. I guess I should change it over. <laughs> but it's come so far in the United States. On even some of the poorer people get some of the nicest amenities compared to a lot of countries out there. Yeah, our our homeless population here gets more than a lot of people in Mexico. Sure. In, in those poor areas. Chihuahua is one of them. Their villages, their villages, my barn would be considered a mansion. Right. A high-end home. Sure. In Chihuahua, which is a, it's like a province or a state or something out there. And it's out in the middle of the desert. They had lean-tos as homes. And they had, they had old tore-up school buses right. that were rusted out that they've converted and had plywood and metal just kind of packed everywhere sure. for just living when we race in mexico we do the baja and all, mm-hmm. that, all that stuff we go through some of the poorest towns that there are on the baja peninsula and it's just your bike costs more than that whole town oh, probably. <laughs> yeah but they're the coolest people they are yeah when we were out there dude they they cooked us a meal i i got a quick story about this they cooked us a meal out in mexico and you know obviously there's a ton of dogs out there wild dogs yeah and they're just there's packs of them um, so we were at this. We were sleeping in this church. The area we were in at that time didn't have a huge crisis for the cartel, but the cartel was still a big problem sure. around that area. They locked us in the church on the outside and inside. I remember sleeping, getting ready to sleep in my sleeping bag, and I look over and I hear chains rattling. They were wrapping chains around the doorknobs on yeah. the inside and locking us in because obvious cartel issues. And the windows were all barred and everything. It was it was kind of it was very different. Yeah. So, uh, the the village people there, not the village people, the, uh, the no, song. it's not the same. <laughs> not the same. I don't even think they had. I think it's, no. <laughs> <laughs> nope, they didn't have that there. <laughs> nope. Um, the people that lived in the village, they cooked us a meal. Fantastic food. It tasted so amazing. Yeah. Until I went into the kitchen, I walked into the kitchen to say thank you, like oh, muchas gracias, uh, señoritas. And I look at the table, and there was a skinned dog yeah. on the table. And I'm like, oh, God. I just ate a puppy. <laughs> it tasted so good, though. I don't know what the hell we ate over there. We could have eaten You could have eaten anything. Stuff. Yeah, and over especially over there. It was. In the med. But just in Mexico, I was like, oh, my gosh. They fed this to us, and it was amazing. And mm-hmm. I told that story to a lady who had a dog with her, and she was like, you're a monster. I'm like. This monster ate pretty well that day. Right, I'll tell right, you that. Exactly. But that was it was a different cultural aspect. That they're we survivors, have, though. And they're survivors. Yeah, they definitely are. And, and they we lose water for a couple hours, and everybody's like, they're freaking out. Oh my god, what are we gonna do? We have to dig a well. <laughs> We're gonna have to dig a well for this. It's just it blows my mind when I hear somebody hire to dig the well. <laughs> we can't do this ourselves. Oh, that is something for somebody else. Exactly. Right. And. That's what just blew my mind. Like people will sit here and complain about a lot of stuff. I'm like, you have no going on on the uh, Appalachian Trail. Brian Johns loves to hike on the Appalachian yeah. Trail. I my favorite thing to do with Brian is take Snapchat videos of all of my water running, yeah. me flushing toilets as many times as I can, send it to him, be like, hey, are you having fun? Like, right? Because <laughs> you're a sucker, bud. Like you got to pump your water, and right. you have to have a you filter. Drink through a creek, yeah. life straw. <laughs> <laughs> and I'm like, dude, it's just. 
the amenities of that that we take for granted and that other so many other places don't have. I mean, I'm a lot of places crazy. in Appalachia, homes in Appalachia. I love towns, it there. That place is gorgeous. Yeah. It's but the town there's towns there that don't have running water that they uh-huh. have that they have to go to a stream and I just find that stuff just amusing, and that's just it happens here. It happens everywhere, but it's much worse than a lot of other places. With a little bit of a worldview, or at least the intelligence enough to look around in the world mm-hmm. and not have be so focused in on whatever your group is here in the United States or whatever side you want to be on and everything else, and then just complain about everything. Like, go get some experience. Mm-hmm. Get out in the in the world. And you will come back here and be, I tell everybody, I went all over the country, I went all over the world, and I came back to Indiana. You know why? A, it was comfortable, and B, I mean, I it had everything I needed. Mm-hmm. It wasn't like I was going to go live in, you know, where were we at? Vieques Island off of Puerto Rico when we're doing operations out there. I'm like, no, <laughs> I'm going back where there's running water and things like that. But people just, they don't get it. And there's... It's getting worse. Mm-hmm. It is definitely getting worse. So let's go ahead and talk about you having a child with cancer at the time. Zane. Everybody knows Zane. All right. So let's go ahead and talk about in the beginning stages when you guys first, how did you guys notice there was something going on with Zane? Um, initially, I want to say this was around probably Father's Day or so. Um, maybe it was my birthday. So one of the first things that he just he had been saying is that he was just run down. He didn't feel good. Um, he was kind of in the military. We call it malingering, like mm-hmm. just kind of slow roll and dragging his feet. Didn't want to do anything like in a hurry. And then uh, it was my birthday. I think we were out to lunch or dinner. Um, we had driven separately because Stacy had met us there. So I'm married again at this point, mm-hmm. right? custodial father now they're they're like 11 and what seven or something like that he uh no might have been later either way he was almost 10 i guess yeah so okay so this is we've been married a couple years and uh it's going swimmingly. Obviously, there's bumps in the road with mm-hmm. being remarried, and now she's dealing with somebody that's medicated, and, and uh, you know, and I, I also, you know, have a seemingly stressful other jobs, mm-hmm. right? So, <laughs> one of them's uh, stressful because of what I do, and then one of them is stressful because of who I do it for. So, hey, can you relate though? I can relate. <laughs> yeah, I, I can see that though. Right. So, um. He had been complaining, throwing up. Now he, you know, I've cleaned up vomit now, and, and Stacy does not do puke. Mm-hmm. So I had cleaned up some vomit and everything a couple times, and I'm like, man, what's going on with him? So then he starts complaining of chest pain. Well, it was the last day of school. It was his, it would have been his fourth grade, maybe year. His fourth grade year. So, real quick, um, I only at this point had met Zane a few times. I can't specifically remember, but he was not really ever an extremely overweight child. He wasn't somebody who was... He's built like his mother's side. Yes. I remember him being more stout. Yeah. But to me, he never seemed to be like an unhealthy kid. No, he wasn't. So all of this kind of stuff to to you. Oh, yeah. I like to eat, too. (laughs) Right. So all this stuff coming up is very abnormal. Yeah. I mean, he had been a soccer kid. Mm -hmm. Um, We... Sometimes under duress, he didn't want to do it, mm-hmm. but we were we were always just trying to get him into some sort of sports, 
my concept is sports, not courts, right? If, yeah. you're, if you're doing something, you're busy. Mm-hmm. So we had brought him. This was like the last day of, I think it was his fourth grade year. Stacy's so much better with this stuff. Um, I was at field day. I was trying to be, you know, that parent. Mm-hmm. Now I've, I'm in the process of probably losing a house. No, I already had. At that point. Yeah, yeah. after the divorce. And a lot of money. But um, he was at field day, so I was going to be field day dad. Mm-hmm. And uh, was there, and they were doing a water balloon fight. And he had been complaining like a little bit of chest pain. Well, he got hit in the chest with a water balloon. Buckled him to his knees. We're like, what is going on? So we take him back to Riley. We'd already been there a couple times. And they'd been dro- doing serial drug or not drug screens, <laughs> not, not now, serial <laughs> blood draws. And uh, he, they ended up admitting him for chest pain. And they they kind of come back, and they're, you can tell they're just kind of throwing darts at mm-hmm. something. They don't really know. It's an unknown ideology. So then they say maybe he has rhabdo, rhabdomyolosis, which is proteins being stuck in your body. It's usually from breakdown of muscles and things like that. So they treat him for that, and they end up sending him home. So we're like, okay, cool. We're breaking out. Everything's fine. So we get home. It wasn't a couple days later. And uh, so now my birthday is in May. This is when it all kind of started. End of May, June is when he got hit with the water balloon, right? So he gets his appointment scheduled, and they they say he, they want him to meet with a cogn- cognitive behavioral specialist. They basically are saying he's faking. So, of course, I'm mad, mm-hmm. right? He goes to the cognitive behavioral therapist, and then they basically say, this is in your head. I, she said, well, do you want me to get his blood drawn while we're here? Because our friend, I won't say her name because I don't know if this is on the books or not, mm-hmm. but she's like, I'll draw his blood, send it to the lab. I'm like, well, you know, screw it. You're already there. We've already spent a ton of money. We're into the deductible now. So they draw his blood. Well... I come home from my other job, which I'm not afraid to say where I work, I'm mm-hmm. from Lifeline. Yeah. I come home, and she she had taken him, like being the good stepmom. And she said, well, you're going to be kind of mad, but they're saying that they think he's faking. And I was like, what? So I'm livid, right? Mm-hmm. So this was June. would have been the second or third of 2014 and uh, my phone rings and it's that doctor, the cognitive mm-hmm. behavioral specialist. And I li- I literally pick up the phone, not like nothing, like, hello, what? I'm like, oh, I'm glad you called. <laughs> and he's like, wait a minute, wait, wait, wait. I'm like, what? He said, well, I got the blood results back. They sent them to me. And I said, I just give them down to the ER and showed him to the other doctor. He's like, I need you to get here now. I said, why? He said, I need you to pack a bag for three or four days. I said, what is going on? He goes, I need you to get here. You're going to meet with the emergency, the emergency doctor and you're going to meet with oncology. I was, and I'm in the medical field. I was like, Oh wow. What is going on? And if I choke up at at any point in time, it's just because this was tough. It's okay. So we get him there and, uh, they both walk in and, they basically said, your son has cancer. And I'm like, where? And they said that he was 75% blasts, which are um, T cells that are mutated. So it was leukemia. 
and uh, set off the next three and a half, four years of just hell. It was crazy. And then you try, you know, I'm trying to call my parents because my mom lives in Tennessee. Mm -hmm. My dad lives in Greenwood, trying to assemble everybody, get them together. And I'm trying to tell the story about everything. And they already knew that we were having some problems with him. But um, it, we were there. He had his port placed and his first chemo on the anniversary of D-Day. What, June 6th or something like that. And he's a big history nerd. And it just turns out that the, the oncologist that was seeing him was a Polish guy. <laughs> so he, they're talking about false flags and Zane's a big nerd for history and everything. Guns, equipment, just tanks. He knows all that stuff. So um, talk about trying to figure out how to be prepared again, right? I wasn't prepared. And then that, that sets off my anxiety. Mm -hmm. And then uh, I've got to... I mean, figure out what's the next steps. Nobody, you know, everybody's kind of pointing at everybody else. Who's leading? I mean, what are we doing? And then I got my ex-wife there. I'm having to stay in the room with my ex-wife because she's a helicopter mom. She hovers. Mm -hmm. And uh, so not only the emotions you're going through with the bad news of hearing about what Zane's got, now you've got the mixed emotions of the ex-wife. And my current wife. And your current wife. To and what am I going to do with my other kids? Yeah, what nobody's about there for him. Everybody's here, and it was we figured that out mm -hmm. later. But um, so that set off. I think our first stay with chemo and everything was probably I think eight days or so that we were just stuck in the room, mm -hmm. and then we're we're learning now about what chemo does, what the options are. Does he have to have stem cell replacements does he what's the next steps and how long is this going to take what's it going to cost mm -hmm. like oh my god overwhelmed and you know in the meantime you're you've been kicked in your junk proverbially like <laughs> yeah. what what do i do i'm shocked and hardest no nothing i did in the military would compare to what would that those next three years would be it was terrible, but we all grew. We learned a lot about each other. And uh, uh, this is funny, kind of ties back to what was going on. The, the, I got a call while I was sitting there feeling that sorry for myself. Didn't know what was going on. I met Riley. I'm looking over at my ex-wife. My current wife's trying to entertain Zane. And I'm just like, God, I don't know what I'm going to do. So I saw a phone number pop up in my phone, and it was from North Carolina. I was like, well, who's this? And, you know, by now everybody knows kind of what's going mm -hmm. on. I don't know who's where or what's going on. So I answer it, and it's, I hear Doc, because I had posted it on Facebook. Mm -hmm. And he, he didn't say who he was. He wouldn't say anything. He's like, um, and I may cuss right here. That's okay. Yeah. He said... When shit's going sideways and the chips are down, you got to lead. He said, lead your family. Hung up. I was like, about, you know, I put my feet on the ground. And I'm like, let's go. And that's pretty much when it kind of started to change. But he's come out of it now. 
he's in remission next year. Mm. Next September, it'll be five years. He'll be considered cured. Um, so let's end this on a good note. <laughs> he uh, went through all the chemo, went through everything, uh, really excelled. We had a couple setbacks where he got like, you know, gets the flu vaccine because he's immunosuppressed. Mm -hmm. He gets flu B. He, he gets a big different change in chemo. It affects his um, his liver. Now he's got bilirubin through the ceiling and, and cirrhosis of the liver. So go back in. Or there for you know, Sometimes we were there for seven, eight, ten days at a time. But most of the time, I mean, they trusted me enough to where I got to go on vacation with him when he was early on diagnosed, and I had to. <laughs> I had to give him chemo every day while we're on vacation. It sucked. <laughs> it's just like, because he couldn't do anything. I mean, <laughs> he looked like powder because he's got, you know, his hair is completely gone. He's white as a ghost. He's got powder. no platelets, no hemoglobin, yeah. no nothing. Plus, he's on chemo. And you just feel sorry for the kid. Like, he can't even go on the jet ski because if he takes a bump, he'll bruise and mm -hmm. could bleed. So, yeah, it sucked. That part of it was the, the worst part. But um, So, on the good note, what I'll tell you is that mm -hmm. his, his dream was always to be a pilot. Um, your brother will like this. Yeah. So, he... Uh, he asked me a couple times. He's like, "Am I going to die? Because I want to be a pilot." And I, you know, a ten-year-old brain, you're like, "No, dude, we're going to get through this. Everything's fine." Mm -hmm. Well, I hope you're right. Yeah. In the back of your mind, you're like, "Damn, dude." But um, so he's been in remission. The kid has got like a four point three GPA. Wow. Right. So he takes some uh, mm -hmm. advanced classes because he's doing all classes at home now. No. He's, oh, he well, he's in back in regular school. Oh, no, no, I meant back at that oh, point. Oh, yeah. So at when that he, point, was he was fifth, doing it when he was in fifth grade, he was homeschooled, basically, by me. Mm -hmm. And then he had a couple teachers that would come to the house. I am not smarter than a fifth grader. <laughs> I mean, I'm intelligent in what I know, the mm -hmm. things that I, my wheelhouse. But Common Core math blows my mind. It's it, so dumb. It, there's phones for a reason with calculations. Right. right. <laughs> but anyway, but... uh. So he wanted to be a pilot all his life. He thought he was going to die a couple times. He wasn't going to realize that dream. And then um, he just went to Survivor's Clinic for the first time, like three months ago. And uh, he qualifies for a bunch of grants, scholarships, and everything else. And he just got accepted into Vincennes, Purdue's aviation. Are you kidding me? No. He got it in. They take like 120 Dude, kids a year. That is so cool. Yeah. So he's going to be a pilot. And he's in an aviation program through Central Nine right yep. now. And he's working on 15 hours of flight right now. He may be done with his private pilot by the time he's out of his senior year in high school. That is so cool. Yeah. Dude, I'm so proud of him. He wanted to go in the military, but they wouldn't take him. He had to be like 10 years without Remission. cancer. I'm like, dude, beat cancer. He's already tough. Take him. <laughs> right? He can fly a helicopter. So with, obviously, he's your son. Did you guys talk often about his mental stability and strength? Mm, yeah. I offered all kinds of tools for him. Um, we talked about faith. We talked mm -hmm. about, do you want to get, you want to interject the church into this? Do you, I mean, I just tried to give him all kinds of options. But we definitely, the, initially, early on, I had to sit on the side of the bed with him and be like, look, this is overwhelming for everybody. I had to talk to him like an adult and he's mm -hmm. 10. I was like, but you have to fight. There is no, there's no option. And you're going to get beat down and I'll be right there with you. But you, you have to fight. And 
he even did some pretty cool stuff early on where he would he he decided on his own that he was going to be part of a uh, a focus group or a like a test. So he did some experimental meds and things like that at the beginning. He had to sign his own little cursive, real weird four you know fourth grade handwriting on it with big sweeping Z's and everything. <laughs> so, yeah, but no, he's he's really turned out fantastic. He's very reverent. He tries to. He's very conscious of like everybody else's feelings. Mm-hmm. He's super um, aware. Like he gives Stacy his stepmom some the, the, almost the equal amount of time that he gives his mother, and he makes sure that he's present. He's reverent. I mean, thanks, sis, thank you all the time. He's just he's a good kid. Not that my other one's not. I mean, my oldest boy is fantastic mm-hmm. too. They're just different. You know, kids are different. With your oldest boy Zeke, yeah. How was he during this whole ordeal? I think he felt a bit cast out. We've talked about it. Mm-hmm. And I, I've validated that feeling. I mean, it's totally, it's totally true because it, it, I had to kind of shift gears and make a different focus. But I have told him, too, he's a lot like me and my family, my immediate family. And Zeke is one of the personalities that I understand because he's a lot like me. He looks just like you. Yeah. But they, there's people, there's certain people that you're like, he'll be okay. I know he can adjust. I'll make up for it when we can. And, and we have. Mm-hmm. But he felt cast out for a little bit. He had to stay with the grandparents for a little while. And all the focus was his brother. And, but he's adapted. At the end, when he rang the bell and everything, Zeke was an emotional wreck. Just, you know, he hates his little brother because he's his little brother. But at the same time, he's watched him struggle so yeah. much. But And then, you know, it's over. And he made it through. And he was crying. I yeah. still remember watching that video of him ringing that bell. It was yeah. so cool. I saw an, another uh, one of our cancer kids just ring out yesterday. Really? Yeah. It was crazy. Well, there was a whole... This just popped up on my uh, recent post feed where the... Happened six, seven, six years ago, seven years ago, about the cancer cluster. Oh, I didn't know if we were going to cover that. No, we can cover it. Yeah. yeah okay. It's a. Uh, I've spoken with some people from the county, and you obviously, I, my opinion, I I have my own opinions. You're allowed. Yes, I, I am. <laughs> I feel like there, there could be cover-ups. That's yeah. what I feel like, and you'll obviously know more, way more about this whole thing than me but for per the country we had one of our county had one of the higher clusters for children with cancer yeah. in the entire country is yes. that is that accurate yep to say that and it came down to the old water treatment facility or it was actually what was it so there was a there was an industry there for a long time that did a lot of degreasing and a lot of things with real quick pull that mic down it's kind of in your face okay. Okay. Right. Yeah. How about that? Beautiful. Huh. <laughs> so um, there was an industry. Well, it's been multiple industries, but the one that the one that has been like recorded and cited by the EPA was the Amphenol. Uh, I guess it was like a corporation. So they remanufactured engines and things like that. Used a lot of degreasers that had a lot of this certain chemical in it. 
They've been known to dump it on the ground. They've been known for not to not put lids on 55-gallon barrels and sit them in the rain, mm-hmm. so they overflow. They've known. I mean, there's be, multiple people that have stepped up and said, "Yeah, they dumped it right down the floor drain." Well, the floor drains and those things, infrastructure in the, Indiana, mm-hmm. let alone city of Franklin, probably back in the day was not great. And a lot of times when they had things that they didn't want to deal with, even as far back as 20s, 30s, when they had like gas lamps or oil lamps for streetlights, when the, that stuff would run out, they just bury it and cover it up. So it, eventually it leaches and leaks. Mm-hmm. So that same chemical that they had been dumping into the ground eventually shut down three municipal wells in Franklin because the parts per billion or million was over what was recommended, so they had to shut down these aquifers. So while we were at Riley, we start noticing like this huge, we're like, hey, where are you from? And they're like, Franklin. Oh, hey, where are you from, Trafalgar? Hey, where are you from? Um, you know, Whiteland, right where we're at. And um, Stacy, she's like, what the hell's going on? And then we meet Carrie. Carrie was a friend of ours, or is a friend of ours. She had lost her daughter with, and had ties in, the, in Franklin. So Stacy and Carrie, and there was one other one initially, but she kind of got, she was too entrenched into the political part of what was going on in Franklin. And it's hugely political. Like good old boy, nepotism. Mm-hmm. Yeah, just, it's kind of gross. But it's like boss hog, weird. I don't know Duke boys. boss hog is. Duke's a Hazard reference. Oh, <laughs> yeah, Duke's a Hazard reference. The guy with the white suit, little short, oh, yes. fat guy. Oh, yeah. my gosh, yes. Yes, so this, it, there's like a Boss Hog reference, Jack Sandlin, whatever. Um, so um, <laughs> That blew my That went way over my head. I'm so sorry. <laughs> it's okay. So um, I'm half your age. They kind of started looking, and it wasn't very hard. We got some Freedom of Information Act, some mm-hmm. FOIA requests, and they fulfilled those. And um Started looking through some Indianapolis Star journal, like microfiche, all the way back to where they would put them on microfiche and then it, there wasn't a file or a PDF or whatever. It was a lot of digging. Mm-hmm. I think they, I want to say Stacy and Carrie and uh, some of the people that we ended up hooking up with, they went through like 30,000 pages of documents to find times when this certain place had been um, cited. Then we start talking to people and then start, people start stepping up and then we start looking at the numbers and we start getting uh, on social media about a reporting, a way to report. Like if your kid has cancer or had cancer and they were within this area, it wasn't long. It was 80 of them in like the last six years or something like that. And they all had ties back to Franklin. And it was, it's an incredible amount, incredible amount. It's huge. Yeah. So Stacy has been to, she's, Kind of got hooked up with a couple things. And obviously, you know my political views. Mm-hmm. But if I lean one way to the middle at all, it's the environment. Because I'm a conservationist. Mm-hmm. I want to preserve the world, you know, the, the nature, yeah. things like that. Well, a lot, a don't lot want of people who are sick. Like, yes, a lot of people who are hunters, who are Second Second Amendment uh, provocateurs. Yeah. I, ble- I, ble- think, I think that'd be the right word to use. They lean heavily towards conservation of the sure. of our environment that's responsible of our landscape yeah it's responsible it's responsibility a lot of hunters are the same way too that's i don't want to go catch a fish in the pond next to my house and smell like gas you ain't gonna go to the white river you know right it, i don't gotta go far yeah yeah you go there you find an arm <coughs> right <laughs> i've right. heard rumors but i don't know if they're true or not but but the uh 
if I lean one way, that's that way. So she talked me into, there was a lobbying group that was Environmental Defense Fund, and they would use us to tell our story about how an environmental impact has basically impacted our lives. And they would bring us to Washington, D.C. The trade-off was we would talk to the people that they wanted us to talk to to mm-hmm. try and push an agenda. Of course, I had to sit sometimes in these people's office and just bite my tongue mm-hmm. because they would want to go off on some you know, left-wing yes. strategy. And then, but then the, in the other time, so one whole day, we would just hit these senators, bam, bam, bam. We're testifying at uh, um, committee meetings for the environment. Stacy's speaking in front of the, the not the White House, but the Capitol building. Capitol Hill. Yeah, literally yeah. on the steps. Yeah, I've seen the video. Yeah, I so she's, she's lobbying for kind of their way, but what it ended up doing is giving us an audience with our people. So um, we got to go to all the representatives and the senators for Indiana and say, look, we need your help. We need your help. And one of our biggest partners was you know, a Democratic senator. He's mm-hmm. gone now, but but he was super cool because he was right in the middle. He reminded me a lot of a Joe Manchin or mm-hmm. whatever. So we would get an audience with them, so then we would start to get some traction here. So in the meantime, with all the legwork that she had put into it, I was part of the group as well, mm-hmm. but I was a little bit too brash. Stacy's really good at kind of like making her point making you feel stupid but at the same time like she's so cute so <laughs> right and i've got a vein sticking out in my forehead and I'm like, ah! <laughs> but she uh, she would get some things done so then we started to get some traction and there were people starting to force the epa to come here they we we ended up befriending a not-for-profit out of new jersey that specializes in remediation and uh, we started putting pressure on them and now franklin had to dig up all these sewer lines and everything that were getting permeated with this trichloroethylene and was coming into people's houses and they were breathing it in and they're getting sick or it's in the water and they're drinking it Mm -hmm. or it's literally just coming out of the ground like when the water table comes up so they've had to remediate a bunch of that it's not done obviously COVID 19 and everything has kind of stopped all the traveling to dc and we can't put the appropriate pressure on people but we started a not-for-profit and uh we use that money whatever money we do make and the name plus the 501c3 and mm-hmm. uh we are just going to keep going until what's the name of it if it was your child if it was your child yeah and then how can people it's a hashtag i mean you look it up on, on social media and it'll probably send you to the newest one like i said it's been a little bit chill for a while just because of the planned gimmick and mm-hmm. yeah just the fact that we can't travel yeah so we've been chilling but they're fully intent to to get going on it again, just as soon as everything kind of lightens up. When you said the planned pandemic in the beginning of this, dude, people thought I was a conspiracy theorist. I am. Okay. I, I, I love a good conspiracy theory. Okay. I love a good one. And good I, one. I love watching them do There's a guy that I, I've, I've met and talked to that. I was very surprised on how deep into conspiracy theories. He's what he was. Right. And, and I was like, dude, Oh yeah. The camera's not, Focusing it. All right. It's a little better. It's not that bad. Ooh, eh. oh well. um, but I was like, dude, I am surprised on how deep you are into it. Like, right. And he's naming stuff off. And I'm like, hold on a second. Let me write this down. I'm <laughs> right, it down. Right. But with the whole uh, pandemic that went on, at, at, at the beginning of this, I 
I, I did say a lot of things, and they did come into fruition just because I was listening to these kinds of people that were talking about it. But they had meetings in 2019 talking about a coronavirus outbreak. Barack this Obama said it before then. Yes. You can go back and look. In 2014, 2015, something like that, they talked about there will be, by the end of the next term or the, the, that term with Trump. Sure. A weaponized will, political something? Yes. <laughs> there will be a, an outbreak of a coronavirus near the end of his term that will cause a global pandemic. I know. And lo and behold, it happens. Right. And like Candace Owens recently came out and she just said, hey, there will be a cyber attack. They have already did. They in 2020 they ran a a scenario of a global cyber attack where all the internet and stuff will go out. Now, whether you believe this or not, you know what they're going to blame it on. Uh, what do they? What do you think? The solar flare that's about to happen. You think so? Yeah, it's easy. That, man. Would, that would be pretty easy. Yeah. Well, you know how that Biden talked about doing a uh, countrywide broadband, right? Which obviously, if anybody knows anything about internet, it's you. If you know anything about how government works, to get anything to happen, like to even, let's go ahead and use the example of if you have Wi-Fi at your place of work, say a firehouse, and you want to have better Wi-Fi, and you just say, hey, it's free to call, uh, it's, it's call, you just call, it's free to update, all you have to do is just make the phone call, takes you five minutes, mm -hmm. and you're laughed at. Right. Go ahead and do broadband for the entire country, right. And see how well it's going to be. I think you're it'll be like on. no, yeah. It'll be it'll be like uh, around the East Coast, a big interruption across Texas, <laughs> and then pick back up in Western Arizona and go up the West Coast into the Washington State. Yes, yeah. but you can go back. And guess and, who won't get it? The flyover states. The flyover states, which uh, politicians openly call us that, which yeah. blows my mind. But if you can go back and actually see their meetings that they had they're very they're open global meetings that they're all recorded everything's documented sure. and when i saw it i was like oh my god but it gets filtered out before any media outlet's gonna correct. do anything with it you gotta go find it correct you have to do the the research yourself right. which which recently brings <clears throat> us up to the uh, uh rittenhouse case oh dude okay i am pumped because it just came the, the verdict came out yesterday right not guilty thank god right but people if you watch any left-wing media, which I know people people are like, don't bring uh, politics into us. Yeah. Where? Into, you know, when I talk on the podcast, people will tell me, dude, people will tell me, like, you can't bring in politics about it. Dude, let's go. I'm all about it. Yeah. Like, I'm all about it because, for one, it's more of an interesting conversation. And if you can bring in politics, is it, it relies heavily into what we do for a living. Like, who you have politically standing sure. in office. Yeah. It, it does truly matter. But with the whole Rittenhouse case, that was a huge fight for the Second Amendment. Like, if they would have gotten this, if they would have had a guilty verdict, yeah. what does that tell you as a self-defense measure for you as a, an American citizen that's that just they another, are going to come for your gun? Exactly. That's gonna, just another way for them to look at me and say, look, it's not going to be upheld for, for mm -hmm. you to... Uh, you know, provide self-defense. So why do you need it? Exactly. So l just let us have it. Just you know, turn it back in. We'll give you money. We'll just print some more money. Oh, like Australia did. Right. And now look at Australia. Right. It's There's certain parts of Australia that are absolutely just horrible. People are, they're literally being put. And, and I told this to somebody These else. camps? In, in a camp, and they did not believe me. Yeah, and I and this is somebody that I love dearly and that I see all the time, and I'm like, they are putting people in an actual like it's a trailer park camp, right? And they have to live in these if they. It's have, like the FEMA so stuff can, after exactly. Katrina, and they're they're waiting out on their porches like a bunch of cows waiting to be fed, right? 
And it's it's like they're ringing the dinner bell, and they just start walking out their front porches. They're standing there waiting. Sure. And you, once you get to things where like broadband, if the if the government's supporting broadband, then they're making it a right. You could do like with what uh, I believe it's Russia or Germany. They consider Wi-Fi to be a human right, but they can also take it away and monitor it. I mean, they're already yes. monitoring it. But they then, do. I mean, yeah. Yeah, but they already do that. There's so many other ways that they can now, like, well, we gave it to you, and we'll do what we want. Exactly. I'll put this filter on it if I want to. If you say something bad, like Second Amendment, all of a sudden they're like, flag it, watch him. <laughs> I tell you what, one of my first videos that I did, I posted out there. It was with Brad Pendleton. It actually got flagged and censored on Facebook, and I got it got taken down because I was trying to um, do a boost post on it, which basically you just pay you know six seven dollars yeah. to reach a certain amount of people, and it got flagged for. Uh, it was during the uh, shoot. It was during the time when Trump and Biden they were doing the voting and everything. I can't, I, what is it? Oh, you mean Dude, like I'm the like them stealing the votes, <laughs> stealing the stealing the election? <laughs> well, yes, it was during that time. Yeah, I'm trying to word it to where I don't get this video taken down. This for one, it. yeah. Oh, uh, maybe I take that back then. Oh yeah. Uh, uh, there are certain things. No joke. There are certain things that I have to say. Posting stuff on YouTube and Facebook, like Joseph Biden was won the election. There may or may not have been things that happened that were weird. Yeah, I have to say that stuff. Yeah, to to like to keep the video up. Sure, because I've had videos taken down, and I don't make a fuss about it because, for one, I hardly anybody watches these. So right, like, dude, I am so whited out right now. Oh well, but hardly anybody watches these, and I don't really make a big fuss because there's no reason to. They can kick me off as whenever they want if yeah. I don't say anything that's the correct way. So, um, but during that time, I had a video post get taken down because it was considered that's possibly going to sway somebody's vote. If you go back and watch that episode with Brad Pendleton, there's nothing in there yeah. that's talking about who you should vote for right. or who it'll sway to. We literally talked about what his job was and what he does for a living. He worked, he works for the state for the non non non-profit state basically what he does is non-public so any private education places if you need funding to go to that school yeah. he helps facilitate that sure so that way you can go to whatever school you want and it's it's kind of funded that's what his job is but that is at that point considered politically swaying towards one side oh, of probably aisle. because it's it's supported by one side and not it's the supported other. by one side and not yeah. the other so if you sit there and you watch the news especially about the kyle rittenhouse case you will see that more to the left leaning, which is most of it's almost all media is all left leaning. They show only certain things. I talked to somebody yesterday, last night on social media. They were talking about how racist Kyle Rittenhouse was. I know. And that the people, the victims that they deleted the post, which I was really, I wish I would have screenshotted. They talked about how they thought that the victims, which there's, there weren't victims. They're not victims. Yeah. They said the victims were black. No. The people that Kyle Rittenhouse shot and killed were the people that were attacking him. They were all white. I know. But in the media, they talked about them being black. Yeah. Which early on, even the president of the United States currently called him a white supremacist. Yeah. They, he had him in his campaign ad as, yeah. as a white supremacist. It's like that's completely false, and I hope that he does a defamation lawsuit on yeah, that. Yeah, that's like, like me how, taking this thing right here and oh, telling you, and I'm going to take this right here. This is a phone. See this? It's a phone. It's a phone. It's a phone. No, it's not. It's still a can. <laughs> right? Just, just. Oh man, they people just get spoon-fed this stuff all the time, and they just they consume it. Mm -hmm. 
and and when I my biggest thing is if you want to watch the news, watch whatever you want to watch, but or do yourself please, a favor and don't watch any of it. Yeah, don't watch any of it and do your own research. Cause right. That's honestly just what I do. I'll, I'll watch private news media, which I trust way more than any major. I don't even trust Fox News. No. Because there's still agendas being pushed. Yep. And I watch all the small media stuff because I believe more in smaller media because they are more they are more directly responsible for keeping themselves afloat. Right, because they don't have an agenda to push, and, and if they do, business. and it's 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 an actual business, and, business and, and a brand. And if somebody doesn't like what you're doing, yeah, you can actually tell because your funding is going to start going away. Right. So you want to give the truth to people. So yes, people want the truth. Right. But, but the whole Rittenhouse case. What is uh, your opinion on that? Justice served. I mean, it with if you put it in a in the way that the whole court system is supposed to work. It worked. Mm -hmm. The prosecution had, it was terrible. It was bad. He was bad. I mean, like, where in the heck did they get that guy at the dollar store? Like, you guys got any prosecutors? Yeah. Yeah, aisle four. (laughs) Next to the cat food that's expired. But the, but the, I don't know, he was terrible. And then all the information that they had and the amount of media that covered it, I mean, he was threatened. Multiple times he took. I mean, he kind of took a beating in a little bit. He got hit in the head with a skateboard, kicked yeah, he, in the face. He, he did take a beating. Yeah, I mean, he really but did. And he showed the he prosecution showed wanted him to just sit there and take it. They're like, well, maybe you should just take your beating. No, one of the prosecutors said, "You don't take a gun to a fist fight." I do. <laughs> uh, you should. You should. <laughs> right. Whenever someone's about I'll to take a grenade you. launcher to a fist fight, <laughs> if I can find one, I'm old. <laughs> I'm just I'm just glad that I'm just glad that justice was served. I'm glad that there's more faith restored back in. People weren't being like in the Chauvin trial. People were being jurors were being threatened. Yeah. And they were afraid. Even one juror came out afterwards and said, I was afraid to do a not guilty verdict because I would be attacked. Sure. My house was was threatened to be burned down. And, and that had a that, lot more. That had a lot more emotional drive behind. It did it have because, a lot more emotional drive behind right. it. And and the thing is, is like I even hate saying it, but he did do what was by the book per that department. Yeah, that was specific. He did specifically what he was told to do. That's the way they were taught it. It was their, their training in their academy. Yeah, that's exactly what they're training. Now, is it an do. old tactic? It's an old tactic. It's functional. It is. It very did functional. work, but I mean, well, with the drugs in his system, yeah, it, did it was not a help terrible cascade of just. Mm-hmm. bad stuff that happened there was a lot of responsibility to be shared by a lot of people in, oh, in the george floyd case definitely rittenhouse i the only thing that bothers me about it a little bit but we've talked about it even mm-hmm. prior to this is his age mm-hmm. but as far as like what he did with the minimal amount of training is he he showed a different, a, a small level of skill. Obviously, I can critique it a little bit. I was going to ask you, what was your critique on that? He got really lucky. Mm-hmm. I mean, he did what he had to do, but there again, he was terrified for his mm-hmm. life. He did get lucky because the people he was fighting were thugs. If there were people that were actually trained to, like, assault you, mm-hmm. he probably would have died. <laughs> but yeah. he got lucky. The people that he did shoot, the guy that, uh, Rosenbaum. Yeah, I, I'm, I'm gonna get that was this the first wrong. one. The, no, the Rosenbaum was the first one, yes. Yeah. And then Groschkoitz, right? And then the other guy, I don't remember his name. Unnamed male. Unnamed male. Yeah. Um, if you do any sort of like legal, like 
court history with those two. Grosskreutz stabbed his brother in the ear. Mm-hmm. Now, I may get I may get this wrong. I I don't think I'll get it wrong, but I may get it wrong. Yeah. Grosskreutz stabbed his brother in the ear, threatened to burn the house down with his mother and grandmother and sister inside, and threatened to kill each one of them. Yep. Upstanding citizen. Great guy. Great guy. Great, terrific guy. He was at Christmas last, <laughs> last year. <laughs> and then uh, Rosenbaum. Yeah. Convicted of child rape, mm-hmm. and, well, child molestation, and sodomy. Five of five little boys and anal, anally raped a five, anally raped a five year old or nine year old. I don't remember either way. I don't. Gross. I don't think it matters no. uh, the age, but well, it does matter the age. Anything under the age of eighteen, but anally and it has raped. To be consentful. <laughs> I mean, it's still rape. It's still rape. Right. But it was. It's to stand there and say that these people were upstanding citizens, which is what I've heard plenty of times, is disgusting. It is. And immoral to say. Right. And the fact that, what for one, what do we have? Does, I've heard this argument. Rittenhouse had every right to be afraid to be getting raped by these guys because they've got prior history. I don't know that he knew the history. He but, did not know the history. Right. He did not know the history. But that is something you could say afterwards. Like, yeah, I was... It's like in the whole Step Brothers thing. He said, "Let's get it on," like, <laughs> and I believed him. Like, he's got a history of it. Right. That's just my joke for it. But with with that whole thing, like I do agree that he was lucky. Now there was some misinformation on he. It was proven that he did not have a GM that he rack tapped and back right. into it. But and the reason why that got started that actually came from Grosskreutz's Twitter. He said that he he racked and tapped. He racked and tapped, but. You can watch in the video he never did. Oh. You can watch in the video he never did. Now it was put if you can sit there and watch the video in slow mo, which I've done plenty of times, unless he's got a quarter of a second time for racking and then tapping right in the go, yeah. It didn't happen. Right. It's I haven't watched it that exclusively. Yeah. I just keep rewinding it to where he shot him in the bicep. Oh, where, he va- where he vaporized my bicep. Like, yeah, he did, dude. <laughs> yeah, right. This showed that kind of re- restraint on it too. It's, I mean, honestly, whenever I've gone to the range, it's all it's. If I'm turning and tap tap, it's tap tap. It's, sure. It's a few at a time. I mean, a 17 year old kid with a semi-automatic weapon, not an assault rifle. Correct. Right. Or an automatic S- rifle. No, it's yeah. not. Semi-automatic weapon. A 17 year old kid. I know what my 17 year old would have done. It'd have been empty. <laughs> yes. So I mean, a little bit of precision and mm-hmm. surgical like movement. I mean, it is what it is. I'm glad he's out. I'm glad he's going to have an opportunity to live. Um, I'm sure he'll be fine financially. Mm-hmm. Um, I think the justice was served. And um, if if anybody's writing about it right now, then we just we can't be friends. <laughs> <laughs> it's. My biggest thing is follow, follow what truthfully happened. Yeah. Look at the case. I I watched the court case on it. If you if you're gonna sit there and still say that he's a racist afterwards, you you are part of the problem in our country with not you, but people it. that no, say that you. that he's a racist. Well, did you watch the case at all? Do you, do you know what he was even there he for? He was a scared kid. He was not even not. I won't even go with him being a scared kid. I'm going to go with he was stepping up and doing what the law enforcement failed to do in that community. People were threatening to burn. Oh yeah, down I guess you're saying. Yeah, yeah, what you're yeah, saying yeah that's what I'm talking yeah, about. Yeah. Yeah. People were threatening to burn down businesses. We're about to be business owners, right? I would go and protect my business. Call me. 
Yeah, I'll call it. I'll call you. Right. My kids I are grown, my man. I got, I got skills. I can help you. Oh, yeah. <laughs> you got it. But I would be doing the same. I'd be standing in front waiting, like, bring yeah. it on, dude. Yeah. This is my business. This is, you're not taking This us. is where I make my money. Right. So until anybody's got skin in the game, because right now we're about to get skin in the game. Sure. I understand, and I'm thankful for somebody to step up to protect the local businesses in that area. Black-owned business, white-owned business, doesn't matter who you are. Nope. You're still a business owner. Yeah. You're somebody who needs protected that the law enforcement failed to do their job. Well, they stood off. Let them, they did let stand them do off. And that's the disgusting part about it. But also, then again, there's so many discussion parts into that. Why would they stand off? Were they told to stand off? Guarantee it. Well, they were They were told to stand off. They, they Hey, free, freedom, you guys do free whatever, you, whatever you want. Yeah, do whatever you want. Get your temper tantrum out of the way. Throw it. Do whatever you want. But then again, the officers that did that, they were told to do that. The people who could have stood up and did anything about it, they're yeah. probably afraid to lose their job. Right. What else are they going to do? If that point in Kenosha, yeah. Wisconsin, right? at that point, if you're told not to step in and help those who are in need because yeah. you're afraid to lose your job, you should quit your job, right. no longer be an officer. But at that point, what is what is next? What is next to come? Who knows? Law They're enforcement going to start giving City. them businesses instead? Yeah. Like, hey, oh. go ahead and start running it. Yeah. Like, look at New York City. Cops are dragging people out of businesses because they're not vaccinated. I know. And I sat last year, I said two years ago when this started, I said, what are they going to do when here, when you're not vaccinated? Give it time. Hey, it's going to come here. There are going to be mask mandates here. No, no, there won't. There what is. Happened? There's mask mandates. Yeah. What, what happened when, hey, you got to be vaccinated to work here? Well, they're going to do it here. No, they won't. It'll never come here. It came here. Yep. What's next? Hey, look at Australia, what they're doing. They have a camp that they're building that will be completed in 2024. What does that tell you? This it's is still going to keep away. going. Yeah. This is still going to keep it's And then the people away. will say it's going to be here forever. It, yes. But if we're not going to stand up for what's right and let people make their own choices, what are we going to be doing? Right. Yeah. The hard part is, is that when you start talking about like standing up and standing up against that stuff, I mean, this is a good way to convey a message, obviously, mm -hmm. however many people watch it. But the it's unfortunate that it's going to, one guy can kind of light a fire, but it's like lighting wet leaves on fire. You know what I mean? You're going to get five or six leaves are going to burn, and it's going to fizzle. Yes. And it's not until you put, like, gas on the fire or you get a bigger pile of leaves. You know, What's, you need more people to be in the exact same way of thinking. And then, I mean, it's, it, right now everybody's using Internet and everything to saber rattle, basically saying, oh, we got we to gotta overthrow or do this. Or we got to stand up against these people. It'll take thousands. Mm -hmm. So what's going to set it off? What's going to be that gas? What's finally going to be the gas that puts the wet leaves on fire? You know what I mean? Because mm -hmm. it's you can all you can do right now until that comes to that is prep. Mm -hmm. And I'm not saying like I'm saying like just be ready. Well, like with what Can we talked about earlier with Candace Owens when she came out and said that they had a summit for a, a big meeting on a scenario when the cyber attack happens and the internet goes out, right? That that could be a very good way to fizzle out a lot of people. You know that the internet goes out though; it's going to take down a lot of communications and everything too. Mm -hmm. So let's talk about this for a second. What's the contingency? I mean, are you going to go to the firehouse? Are you going to you going to go to your job if there's no lights? There's people roaming around the streets mm -hmm. looking for food and things like. I'm, I'm not going. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, at that point, what do you show up with? This is just all hypotheticals, people. Right. Hypotheticals. It is hypothetical, it's but like it's, but, it's extremely hypothetical. But yeah. you said this is like uh, 
you know, conspiracy theory type stuff. Yeah. If we get into that point, what do you do? I mean, I got I got a compound to maintain down there, right? <laughs> <laughs> I got a stuff I don't want other people to know I got or come and get it. So I don't know, man. You would think that like public safety places and everything would be like, okay, check it out. We get a we get a ran overran by aliens in California. <laughs> like odd days, you guys are coming. Okay, mm-hmm. even days, these guys are coming. Nobody thinks about that though. Well, you talk about the collapse. If we're going to go ahead and sit and, and talk about, because by the way, I mean, I would love to be part of that prepping kind of that conversation for a department. Because I mean, how much fun would that be? For one, like oh, yeah. prepping for all that kind of stuff. Yeah, that would be so cool. There's none. There's none. Well, the government came out. The government came out and said uh, they didn't say specifically UFOs are real, right? But last year, do you remember this? In like in June oh, yeah, yeah. or something, yeah. they came out and said there are un- unidentified objects that are not of this world. Right. It's weird. We don't know where they're coming from. We don't know where they're coming from. Right. That's kind of like saying in breaking news. <laughs> <laughs> right? Just cover that up, <laughs> and nobody cared. Like that goes to tell you how crazy things got last year, and. The government's like, hey, things are going kind of sideways right now. We should go ahead and release this because it'll just slide. Yeah, exactly. Right and it exactly. Did, yep. It did exactly what that what that. And when I saw that, I read part of the documents that came out that was declassified, and I was like, oh my gosh! They just came out and said, if you don't want to talk about this, you, you don't have. To. Oh, you're fine. Okay, perfect. And they came out and said that aliens are basically there. There's a very high likelihood. It's, it's probable. highly probable that there are uh, beings or something else. Either other dimensional or otherworldly that are in existence, and we don't know what's going on. Right. Because I'm I'm real big on the whole alien stuff. Like it's interesting. It's very interesting to me on what it could be or what it can't be. If you can think outside of a third dimension, mm-hmm. right? And your but your mind ever touches a quantum realm, you have to think like there's no way it's just us. No. <laughs> there's no way. Which I I, I believe in. <clears throat> I believe in the Bible. I believe in what is talked about in the script. There could be a difference of who these aliens are. Sure. Because I've, I've got my, my hypothesis on this. Like yeah, Maybe a sea ray is an alien. You don't know. Exactly. Right. So like with maybe crabs. Crabs are weird, dude. Listen, Jordan, <laughs> Pe- Jordan Peterson. Are you, are you a fan of Jordan Peterson? I know. Okay. A little bit. Jordan B. Peterson, I highly recommend it. If you guys are interested in reading or audiobooks, for one, he's got a pretty cool – he's got a different voice. I like listening to it. i got a couple of his books. Um, I actually just bought Maps of Meaning uh, last night. I was kind of – I was kind of – I was drinking a little bit, and I was like, man, I'm going to buy his book. And nice. I bought the book. <laughs> it's 30 hours long audiobook. Like, oh, my God. Dude, and I don't know why I bought it. <laughs> I'm going to listen to it, though. Yeah. But in, in his um, – uh, not Beyond Order, but in his other book uh, – right there. Let me see it real quick. 12 Rules for Life. Oh, I have that. 12 Rules for Life. I have it in my truck. I can remember that. You have what? So I think I have the 12 Rules for Life in my truck. Dude, great book. Read it. Okay, I haven't read it yet. It's fantastic. Uh, That one in Goggins' book I was going to read. Oh, I haven't haven't read any of his books. Yeah. Um, He's from Indiana. Brazil. Yeah. Uh, Brazil, Indiana, not Brazil, Brazil Indiana, yeah. <laughs> So in that book, he talks about crabs. The first chapter is all about crabs. Crabs are vicious, bud. Yeah. They're messed up. Right. They're crustaceans. Those things. Are they? Or maybe they're aliens. Maybe they've they just could been be here aliens. the whole time and Do we they just look- accepted and learned how to eat them. 
<laughs> they're, they're coming back in UFOs trying to save right. their people. We keep the bigger them. crabs are well, now coming. Do you like a doctor, uh, not doctor, uh, Commander Fravor. Would, he was on Joe Rogan. He yeah. talked about the Tic Tac. I believe his was the Tic Tac that they saw. And oh, the Tic Tac, yeah. The UFO yeah. that they found. They got a lock on it. I think that was with Favor got a lock on it, or it was another one that they got a lock on it. And, dude, it's on video. The, the military came out with it, and they sent that in to get research. They're like, oh, yeah, it's real. Like, yeah, I don't know what it is. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Your guess is good as mine. Right. So, I don't know. I'm, I'm real big on the conspiracy theory, but back to what we were talking about with the power grid, with what departments would do. What would they do? What is their contingency plan? It's if, not even just the public safety. I mean, all of it. What's going to happen? Power grid goes down. There's pumps and things that like run mm -hmm. sewage treatment plants. There's pumps that pump water uphill. You know, there's all sorts of things that could go down, and all, nobody really thinks about that. They're just like, well, I just I guess I'll put batteries in my old alarm clock, and you know, I'll get up and I'll get a rooster. <laughs> I'll get a rooster, and the rooster will wake me up, and I'll go to work. I ain't driving to work. It's like 37 miles. Well, no even, way. Even at that, like, what's going to happen? Like, with I'm a big fan of EV, like electric vehicles. Yeah. What's going to happen with these people that that have, you know, Teslas? They, the power grid goes down. I do have an answer. What's your answer? Well, I'm thinking about doing it right now. Oh, you want to talk about it? No, I'm thinking about putting in uh, 16 solar panels in a and a backup, backup generator that's all electric. Yeah, that and you can cool. charge cars off the sun. That would be cool. I should have changed. And if it's off grid, or I'm kind of off grid, I'm not yeah. going to say where I live, but I'd be nice to have that you know 18 kilowatt hour battery mm -hmm. and all of a sudden the grid goes down and people are out in the streets like looking around like, what's going on? And all of a sudden I hear a switch. All my lights come back on. <laughs> Everything comes back on. Like I look outside and I'm like, cool, it's sunny. <laughs> I don't have an app on my phone anymore, so I just got to walk outside with the weather rock. You know the weather rock, right? Sun, uh -huh. Sun's on the rock. It's sunny. <laughs> There's rain on the rock. It's raining. There's snow on the rock. It's snowing. It's not hard. Wind is kind of hard with a rock, but... Uh, you got a flag. Right. Yeah, you got a flag up there. Sure. So you go back to the weather rock and just wait for sunny days and just chill. Dude, that's actually a good idea. You know, Elon Musk talked about... It's so expensive. Solar panels? Solar panels and the backup generator and everything, 65000 Oh, you've already priced this out. He was there the other day. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. It was, um, well, I know you can reverse, you can reverse your power from your car, your electric car, mm -hmm. to power your house. If sure. the power goes out for 12 hours, you can yeah. run your car on it for like 14 or 16 or something like that. And you're, it can power a lot of your appliances. As long as you have fossil fuels, too, like some of the newer trucks, mm -hmm. they've got. 120 volt service coming out of the truck mm -hmm. like mine does i'm just plugging into the house for a little while and run the refrigerator yeah. and then it's obviously i have gasoline and propane on hand well a lot of places like with refrigerators like with keeping meat they use salt to keep meat oh to cure it to cure it yeah, yeah. and i will cook a bunch of it in a hurry and then find a way to cool it if you have a pond you can still get to you know 50 some degrees if you can find a way to seal it and get it on the bottom no oh. Right, so that'd be kind of crazy. You just so, have to seal it in a bag and then get okay, it on the like, bottom, and then the water okay, like will keep a vacuum it cool. seal bag. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, with um, with the power grid going down, I do wonder what would police what would because all of our communications. What are they gonna do? What are we gonna do on it? It goes to martial law, I guess. And it's if it can organize the military, if they can organize the military mm -hmm. at all. But I don't even know if they're gonna do that. They're they gonna come. come? 
No, we drill in one week in the month and one week of year. <laughs> <laughs> so let's let's go ahead and run this through. Let's do a scenario real quick. Scenario. All right. I'm going to be uh, the interviewer. You be the interviewee. Okay. You ready? I'm, this is, we're doing this seriously, though, right? I'll be my own personality. Be your own personality. Okay. You may not like this. <laughs> can I come to your place? No. <laughs> so yes, you can, but you need to bring a friend that's not of the same opinion because we're going to get hungry. Ooh. Yes. <laughs> okay. So you're talking about cannibalism already. This is already scary. <laughs> Six times faster than everybody else. <laughs> you got to one up everybody. <laughs> All right. So let's talk about this. Um, how do we think this will go down? How do I personally think? If the power grid goes, does go down, it's not going to be randomly one one day. It just shuts everything shuts off. I don't think that would happen. I think it'd be in sections and spurts, and then the you'll see the media and the government trying to cover it up, saying, "Hey, this is not really no big deal." Oh, you know? no, we're going to go back to like the town crier, though. I mean, there's not going to be print media. There's probably not going to be internet. I don't. There wouldn't be any of that. There wouldn't be conversations have having on phones. You'll see guys with I think I think sat phones would still work. I think landline would still be a better option. So you'll see old people rounding up. <laughs> I think that's what you'll see. 70, 80, 90-year-old people rounding up. Um, but you'll see a lot of stuff like in other parts of the country, like, hey, our power grid's more superior. They're going to use politics. I think they'll use politics with people that have stronger power grids that are all towards electrical, not fossil fuels. Like you look in Texas, what happened in Texas. I was say, Texas has their own grid. They have their own grid, but it wasn't strong enough to what they... Yeah, they never built it for a winter storm. They never built it for a winter storm, which is like once in a 100 years that would right. ever happen. And that also, they were trying to prove like, hey, this all, you know, having all electric stuff's not going to work because it's going to cost so much money to increase the grid, which is why you need fossil fuels to empower a lot of stuff. So I think that it'll be used as a political agenda to push towards more electrical power grids in the entire United States to switch people from fossil fuels, dependence on fossil fuels towards EVs. So that way they, they're they already pushing it. You know, GM came out and said, by 2030, we're going to have all EV. I won't buy and, GM then. Uh, that's right. <laughs> uh, I, it's a cool idea. I think it's fantastic. There's a lot. I, I like electrical vehicles. I really do. I think their, their power is tremendous. Yeah. The technology that goes into them is awesome, but I think it's a market. It's not something that has to be direct. You have to buy electric. I don't, I don't think that at all. I think so as soon as they tell me I have to do something, I won't do it. Exactly. I'm the same way on right. this one. Especially the federal government. Correct. Now, if the states had the rights to go back and say, hey, everything in Indiana is now going to be electric. If you don't like it, go to Kentucky. I'd say, well, you have that right. I guess I'm moving. <laughs> I guess I'm moving to Kentucky. <laughs> right. So they start shutting power grids down. I think more towards Republican conservative states would be the first ones. To pinch them. To kind of squeeze them, the sure. ones that are more purple towards more left. Mm -hmm. If it doesn't work, you'll start seeing more and more uh, blackouts happening. Yeah. So once that happens, let's say it happens in our area that we live in, our our county. I. What would be? Do you think we'll go with a, a department? What do you think they should do? And then personally, what would you do? Okay, so. I would probably exhaust just about every means that I have to be like, does my phone work? No. Does my vehicle work? You know, EMP or whatever. Mm -hmm. Does my landline work? Do I have any internet? All these other things. 
We'll probably exhaust most of the traditional stuff first. I mean, we're not going to get the smoke signals of eggs. <laughs> so early on, before the panic and chaos sets in, you probably should go make contact with somebody and figure out, like, what's the plan? But when I do that, I'm going to remind them, you should have had a plan. <laughs> right? Yeah. So I guess then if there's nobody to be to be asked and you want to see, like, things fall into chaos pretty quickly, you don't have fire coverage and you don't have – I mean – it's not going to be an electrical fire, obviously, <laughs> but people are going to start burning stuff inside their house. They're going to set their, use their chimneys that they haven't used forever. They're going to build fires next to their home to stay warm or whatever. Mm -hmm. And I'm like, you know, who's going to do it? And then we got to remember, we don't have dispatch then. We don't have phones. We don't have, why are we even there? We're just going to drive around. Then we're going to waste a bunch of gas. Pumps run on electric can't get any fuel <laughs> do you think that they would switch over a lot of the stuff i mean if they were forward thinking they'd switch over a lot of the stuff to manual pumps for diesel and, and we also have def in our trucks stupid we also have def in our trucks so we're gonna have to have a, a manual pump for our def systems right that's what i'm saying but our but a lot of our trucks they have so many get it menards no <laughs> yeah menards they run, gone. they run on electric <laughs> that's probably the first places to be looted what do you what do you think about money Money will be cards, obsolete. Credit cards nope. will be done. No. Trading you're going to be trading ammo. You're going to be trading medicine. Mm -hmm. You're going to be trading tools. Shit, am I getting onto chickens and pigs? I don't know. Do you think it'd go back to uh, like trading like part, people like people in your family? Like, hey, you know, yes. we need to do this. Yeah, for hey, sure. You're going to see like – This is a conspiracy theory. It's all conspiracy. Right? This is but, all hypothetical. Okay, so what yeah. happens is, is I have a lot of grass to mow. Right, mm -hmm. so I have time to think about stuff like this. <laughs> and usually, when I get down that rabbit hole, I'm like, "Did I take my medicine? <laughs> I better go and take that medicine." I don't think I took my medicine, yeah, right? Because I don't know how I got here, but you know, I'm looking how to build a lean-to in the in the woods as I pass it. But the uh, it would fall into chaos, and then how long until you know you exhaust your provisions mm -hmm. and you go looking you got to find something else right so prepare i guess is the best thing you can do my neighbor asked me this the other day it's just kind of a side note his kid was in the in the military where he was in boot camp and sent a letter home well and it came to my mailbox mm -hmm. so i texted him or called him or texted him i said hey i've got this letter from your son i'm going to take it up there and you know that way you get it today because i think your wife already picked up the mail I'll put it in your door. Are you home? He's like, no, I'm not home. He's like, well, I don't want you to have to walk all the way down there. I'm like, it's not that far. He goes, well, it's, I mean, it's still a long driveway. I was like, it's 358 yards. He's like, what? I was like, oh. <laughs> <laughs> I ranged his front door. <laughs> I was like, uh, well, I mean, you know, I'm kind of a prepper. And <laughs> kind of <laughs> just, yards. Yeah. What's that? Nothing. Uh, uh, nothing. <laughs> That was a good guess, man. Right. So you just got a bunch of groceries. <laughs> Getting kind of hungry, bud. I saw the some orange juice there. Yeah, exactly. So, no, it's, I'm just a weirdo. I mean, at some point, you got to be thinking outside the box. Look at the Amish. I'm still trying to take the, care of my family. You know what I mean? Yeah. Everybody, everybody's wanting to do that. You're going to have to. My kids to. are older, and I've even told them, like, okay, this gets conspiracy again. My boys probably think I'm crazy. Probably. And I probably am clinically. But... I told them, I'm like, it goes crazy. I mean, you you can choose to defend Greenwood, 
or wherever you're mm-hmm. at in Center Grove or whatever. I said, or you can come someplace where you just got a little bit longer shot, and they're not going to get as close. <laughs> a like, lot of people are going to be lazy. They're going to be. I mean, you got to think about how far away do you live from civilization? Is anybody going to be finding you? Are they going to be mapping out the roads? You you won't be worrying about. But as where much. I live, it's going to be so long until they get out to there. Mm-hmm. There's so much provision and and supply mm-hmm. in such a densely populated area as like suburbia and urban, you know, Indy. By the time they get to me, we will have a well-formed militia yeah. at that point in time. I'm, I'm tell, I think the Amish will have it made. Oh, yeah. Like It'll be like, first time? Yeah. <laughs> no power? Weird. <laughs> He's just sitting there just combing yeah. his beard like this. Oh, Badiah, we'd love to come over yeah, exactly. and stay with you. I tell you what, I think there'd be a lot of people that out in the Amish country, I think that would be a good place to have a good stand with them. If they'd accept they, you. If they would. Yeah. I mean, I, mean, I, they already, are I already have like a shaved head because most of them are shaved heads, right? They can't grow hair on top of their heads because they wear they, hats all the time. Right. They, they have hats, hats rub all the hair time, off. But they do. And they do have defending. Hair. There's all these have different. To, we got, what is it? Is it Presbyterian? There's like a. There's all different German kinds. German Protestant. German Protestant. Yeah. There's uh, Amish. There's mm-hmm. all kinds of Mennonites. There's all mm-hmm. these other things. So um, they probably are going to do fine. They'll be just fine with COVID. I mean, look at with them with COVID. Yeah, I mean, poor many... guy that slept in the dirt in Somalia for a couple of days. Yeah, right? you'll be fine. Yeah. yeah, right. You'll be all right. It's yeah. not. I'm, I'm not saying that I'm ready. There's definitely going to be some things I'm not thinking about. Like, mm-hmm. I can't charge my batteries for my drill. You know, how am I going to put up boards on my windows? Uh, oh, you know, good old hammer, hammer and nails. I got to go back to that. This is. What is this, Juarez? <laughs> what is this, Juarez? I need to hammer my own name. <laughs> exactly. I think that's definitely an interesting topic. I mean, when I'm out mowing, I'll, I'll mow for a while. I mow a five-acre property, and I enjoy doing that property. And I'll sit there, and I'll be like, man, like, what if stuff hits the fan? Mm-hmm. What am I going to do? I mean, there's EMP wave. That, or Electromagnetic pulse. Yes. Yeah. And they go ahead and just take out anything that's, that's yeah. electric. I recently wrecked a vehicle, one of my trucks. And the only reason I had it around is because it was carbureted and it had no electronics. <laughs> oh, man. Well, I was I was listening to uh, Joe Rogan, one of Joe Rogan's episodes. They were talking about in, there was evidence that showed that the, not the government, but an entity can, as long as they had your serial number for your vehicle, your lot number, and they can get into the computer system in your vehicle and they can apply the brakes. They can yeah. apply the accelerator. And there was evidence that they were, the government was taking out people yeah, oh. that they had by doing that. Like, oh, no, the uh, accelerator got stuck on right. and they crashed into a flat wall. That's the whole OnStar thing. I'm like, mm-hmm. I don't want them to know where I'm at. Yeah. Right? <laughs> I don't want them to know the airbag went off. Exactly. Right. So, like, what what else can they do? Because there's obvious things. Like, with, like, you look at Edward Snowden and what he did. Right. Like, the was it the, um, the Patriot Act? Mm-hmm. It sounds pretty patriotic. But it's it not. Truly it was just wasn't. a way for them to spy. Exactly. It was yeah. a way that they would get to looking at all of your Literally text everything. messages, all yeah. of your phone calls, listening your to history your on calls. your internet. There was something that uh, Barack Obama did that I actually did like that they did investigate that and found out. They said, well, how, how many times did this truly actually help the American people? And he goes, oh, uh, like 14. <laughs> <laughs> out, of, <laughs> out of the hundreds of millions of yeah gigabytes of information that they had it would be terabytes at that point of information they had on the american people 
It only helped like I don't even want to say fourteen. I want to say like three. Right. There was like three or four they came out with. They're like, yeah, this. I is think some really of the right. Patriot Act, though. I mean, some of the things that were good about it is that it helped with. Um, oh, what am I thinking of? Are you trying Department to of Homeland Security? It actually beefed that up a little bit. So you got places like in Boston when they mm-hmm. they bombed with the mm-hmm. you know the Boston Marathon and everything. They were able to go through all these different cameras yes. and everything that kind of came about because of that. And they were able to find them and identify them. Otherwise that probably would have went unsolved for a long time unless yeah. somebody talked. Yeah. Could have, but it's still, but who knows? They I may think, set that up too. Who knows? I, there's so much to talk about. <laughs> Dude. What about with like JFK? Oh, uh, that there were some files that were just supposed to be, released, they were supposed to be released and they got nixed by uh, the Biden administration. Yep. So what do you, what do you think? You don't have to tell me if you don't want because he was he was trying to dis. Oh, I know. Him. Yes, yeah, that was an inside job. That was pre-Hillary Clinton. Like, he got suicided. <laughs> or he, <laughs> he got suicided. He got he got unalived. Unalived. <laughs> 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 yeah. I tell you what, dude. It's. I was like, oh no, I learned about it in school. I'm like, oh no, it's horrible. Like, uh, JFK, president, shot and killed by Lee Harvey Oswald. And then you look into it, and you're like, wait, what was he doing beforehand? Oh, he was trying to, wasn't he trying to disband the CIA? Mm-hmm. He was trying to disband the CIA, and you're like, wait, what? He said, why? And then you're looking into it, and you're like, oh, my gosh. Yeah, they're doing some super shady stuff. There are some real shady stuff Merkin going people. on. And, yeah. and you look into that, and you're like, well, why would they do that? Uh, okay. okay. You can start piecing together. You start the- peeling, the can- <laughs> or start peeling back the, the curtains, and people can see in the windows. Like, what is going on here? Yeah. It's a... It's pretty I could go on with that forever and ever and ever, like conspiracy theories and what ifs. Dude, I would love to. We are living in a strange time, though. Yes. I apologize to my kids all the time. I'm like, I'm so sorry for whatever part that I played in this by like not stopping millennials or not stopping whatever. Because, you know, like mm-hmm. I was raised, my parents stayed together till I was out of the military, but it was right shortly after I got out of the military. Honestly, they should have never been together as long as they were because mm-hmm. I was in and out like where they would be separated and they would not be separated. My mom was trying to work. My dad was trying to make it work. And then so I was raised by my grandfather and grandfathers and grandmothers, and they were both part of the greatest generation. So mm-hmm. like my grandfather, the one that I hold dearest to my heart, no offense to my other grandfather, but I just had more time with mm-hmm. him. He was uh, in Pearl Harbor wow. at Pearl Harbor, like when it was bombed. So in the Navy, he ended up, his brother was there as a Marine. So they were taking bodies off of boats and stuff. So this guy had so many stories to tell. He was a hardworking guy, farmer in New Palestine. And it seems like it gets to me, like Gen X. And then after that, it just got soft. I don't know why. I'm not saying you are. I am so soft and pudgy. But you're not. I hate donuts. I'm not, you're not, that's not what <laughs> no, I'm saying. That was actually a question that I have. Questions that I had written down. Oh, do you want to move to that? Perfect. Yeah. Okay. Let's do segue. So let's, let's segue to the next part of the discussion, which what happened to men in America? You look at, we talked about this earlier, you look at an, the older generation, that their testosterone levels are much higher than the average adult male to, as of today. Sure. Not only the testosterone levels, but what, what can go into that? There's a, I think there's a whole multitude of things that go into the decrease in testosterone in the adult male as of today, and also where men are at in a society today. 
Where do you think? Um, you turn that fan on. You need the fan on. Yeah, please. Yeah, you got it, buddy. Thank you. I'm getting in all my uh, creatine and everything. Coke. <laughs> that's, that's how you what. I had me one of these. I mean, I'm feeling it. Yeah. It's got caffeine in it. The body armors. Plus the coffee that I had this morning with the extra shot of espressos. Nice. <laughs> um, this is a theory. Obviously, it's not, you know, the views and expressions of Matt Davidson, not necessarily the views and expressions of the whatever. Yeah. Plug plug your business or place of employment. But <laughs> the, um, this is a theory. Hmm. Where did it kind of go wrong? I think in the school system had a lot to do with that. I think inclusion and the invention of the participation trophy had mm -hmm. a lot to do with that. Um, we move further away from personal responsibility and think as a collective all the time and then include victim mentality. So never take personal responsibility. Always find somebody to blame. It makes you soft. Because if you can't stick your chest out and take your punishment, you know, mm -hmm. the old adage, grandma used to make me get my, pick my own switch. Mm -hmm. You'd be in jail. Dude, really, right? Mm -hmm. I mean, I mouthed off to my dad one time when I was about 14. He paddled me. And I turned around and I said, that's supposed to hurt? He knocked me down. <laughs> like, 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 my mom was like, you're going to kill him. But th that doesn't happen anymore. It's rare if it does. Yes. It's so that is... Rare. That is a slow turn, and I want to say it's Saul Zelensky or Alinsky. It's, it's part of the Communist Manifesto or something like it, or Atlas Shrug, Atlas Shrugs or something like that. I can't remember which one it is, but they even said that like it, it will take a long time mm -hmm. for you to turn the dial on one generation and then turn it a little bit further on the next generation and turn it a little bit further on the next generation until they become either dependent or so soft that they don't know where to turn for guidance, so they look to the government mm -hmm. or whatever. Now, another theory about testosterone levels. This is just me kind of spitballing. I think that they've created so much stress, people to be stressed out about this, stressed out about that. Now you can be stressed out about what you, what bathroom you use. And stress, you know, decreases cortisol or burns up your cortisol that's in your body. And that's what kicks off a lot of testosterone response in your body. So if you're constantly stressed out about it and you're constantly like given all this news media, given all these things where you, you feel like you're stressed because you're a victim and, mm -hmm. and you know, things just get harder and harder for you in a perception and you just burn out all your cortisol and then your testosterone levels go down. I know they're doing a lot of studies with vets, returning mm -hmm. guys, combat vets, guys that may have undiagnosed post-traumatic stress or things like that. And it could be even in the fire service, depending mm -hmm. on your perception of some of the things you see, it's burning out cortisol. So it's they're doing a lot of cool stuff now with testosterone replacement therapy. Mm -hmm. Another one that I'm kind of an advocate for. I am a huge advocate for that. Yeah, so um, it definitely helps and changes things. But as far as like, it just seemed like everybody was more manly. But like my grandfather, he's named, my young oldest boy is named after him. His name was... Zeke, and he was uh, he was just a hard dude. Like lived through the depression, went to Pearl Harbor, owned a farm, right? He wasn't afraid to be like a janitor. He was a janitor at Ron Colley for like 
13 years or something like that. But he, he still did it. He was just a manly guy. Big hands. You know what I mean? Just that generation's so lost. Like, I don't want to be like, you damn kids. But they they would not understand that. No. no. Do you think that there's a saying out there that I heard recently? Hard times create strong men. Strong men create easy times. Easy times create weak men, which turn into hard times. Yep. I think that's, I think we're currently in the easy times create weak men. Yeah. That's where I think we're at. Yeah, we're about to see hard times, though. I think we're about to see very hard times. Because nobody's, nobody's got the, I don't think anybody's got really the gumption or the fortitude forecasting what we have to look forward to as leaders and they're they're not there we just don't have it mm -hmm. they're not going to be the, the people that can make those hard decisions and not worry about hurting people's feelings that is something that being <clears throat> i mean obviously i'm way younger than you by far that's all right <laughs> but i also, don't begrudge I, anybody no, that's no, younger it's, no it's perfectly fine but the reason why i bring that up is because i remember still being in school being told and taught now you can't say that because it'll hurt their feelings right. now if you look at schools i have personal opinions on public schooling and private education but education schools are tailored towards women girls the sit down be quiet respect each other and learn we're gonna we're gonna talk to you be receptive to this boys don't learn like that boys, boys need structure they need structure they need to get their hands on things they yes. need to be moving around that's what they need, and plenty of other things. I'm not a, so I'm, I don't understand everything on this aspect, but sure. I do understand a basic part of the aspect of it. But the way that we're teaching young boys to sit down and act more like girls can also it's a change. different take on it's it. A, it's a different, it's a different take, but I think that's part of it. I, I honestly, very uninterested in education, very uninterested in sitting down and learning in school. I think it's stupid for me. Right. I, I'd rather not in a public setting or in a private in, setting or both. Public setting. Okay. I, in a public setting, I think that it's just completely idiotic. Idiotic. I think that you have to have, like the boys and girls schools, you could yeah. see in those, there's completely different reactions in their SATs and in their responses to innovation and education sure. from those schools versus public schooling. Like I had this talk with somebody a couple months back. Uh, public schooling is some of the worst ways you can teach young boys. Some of the worst ways. Private education is next best. Uh, homeschooling is the best. Look at the, the statistics on what their scores are and yeah. their college and, uh, admissions to what they graduate with. Homeschooling is the way to go. The, um, not that I'd want the, ever, want the government to do anything with it, right? right? But I almost think that you could add layers. Like you could have homeschool. If you learn that way, great. Mm -hmm. um, my boys both thrive in vocational type. Mm -hmm. uh, so vocational, uh, what is it? Like the core forty or with vocations or it's technical like, like what like what, what Central Nine has yes in so that your basics there are a lot of people that learn that way you learn that way I oh, knowing yeah. what I know about you having worked with you in different settings I know that you are the type of learner that has to put your hands on it you have to be shown one you have to do one and then you can teach one mm -hmm. right that it's so one way now in public in public schools. Mm -hmm. Where it's just like, this is what we're doing. This is the prescribed thing. This is what the union for the teachers has agreed that you will teach. This is the, the you know, the, what do I want to think? 
I'm trying to think like this is the road that you're going to go down. And these are the lessons you're going to teach on these days. And this is what you can include and what you can't include. And you're, you're right. I mean, a lot of people, we will turn a corner. I actually think that my oldest son's generation has got maybe a chance. And he's 21. Yeah. But he's interested in, like, the Libertarian Party, and he works on a campaign. And, oh, that's cool. I didn't know that. Yeah, Rainwater. Oh, very cool. He's his media guy. Oh, are you serious? Yeah. I had no idea about that. Oh, yeah. So Maybe maybe he can help me with some media stuff here, because I am. That's what his degree's in, media are marketing. You yeah. You think I can talk to him about kind of giving me some assistance on what I should do with getting the word out on this stuff? Like podcasting, he probably can. I mean, he's right now he's working with just social media right. as a job, and while he's interning and then That's fixing cool. that. Anyway, oh yeah, yeah, I think he's got a chance. That meet that generation may have a chance. I don't remember what I was saying how we got to this, but the they learn different, mm-hmm. and I think that technical honors should not be something that you scoff at, even if you come from a family that's you know maybe affluent or they do okay. Maybe they have professions that are held in high regard, but you might get a kid every once in a while. It's like, well, he's not doing very good in school. I don't know why. What am I doing as a parent? Am I failing? Well, change what he's doing. Change the way he's learning. There again, homeschool if you have time. Mix regular learning with vocation. You know, like you said, you you got you got time where you're doing it at home. Ooh, I'm cramping. Um, you got to do your 40 or whatever to get them to, to go and take, you know, whatever degree or whatever test they got to take. But mm-hmm. at the same time, get their hands on something. Do a small engine repair. Build a shelf. You know, stuff like we used to do when we were in shop class. Yes. Right? And they, they've, taken, they've taken a lot of those classes yeah. out. Yeah, but a lot of kids learn that way. Mm-hmm. I still remember that stuff. I still remember I learned how to weld in high school. Me too. welding class. Yeah, I took metals one and two. Mm-hmm. And it was like I still use that stuff every day. Now, sewing class that I used to have to take, like in home ec, you don't even know if they have that anymore for you guys. I don't. I took it. I had home ec, but I don't think they teach home ec as what I've they used to. I've not sewn a bag with a drawstring in it in the one time <laughs> that I've been out of school. But I sure as heck have welded some stuff together. I, I have. I so, can build I some shelves. Yeah, I have sewn since then. I have sewn because obviously I was single for a while. I'm married now, obviously. Right. But I was single for a while and I had holes in my shirts and my pants and I was like, oh, I remember how to sew. And I'm just wrapping the sucker in. Right. I mean, I can put a button on. Yeah. It's not like I'm going to build a bag, though. You know what I mean? <laughs> I'm not going to build. If the, if the grid goes down, you I might. I guess I'm building a bag. You're building a bag. I might. <laughs> Little do you know, I have a pallet of bags in my barn. <laughs> Just for ever... such an occasion. <laughs> that wouldn't be a bad place. Another place that I was told that would be a good place to uh, to have some uh, a meet, a meeting for would be... If everything does go to crap, where would where would you want to go? I had a buddy of mine, an old friend of mine. He said, I, I'd go to a food distributing facility. I'm like, why? He goes, because the place that he worked for at the time, he's like, he's like, you've never been to one of our food distributing facilities, have you? I'm like, uh-uh. He goes, it's guarded. He mm-hmm. said, if you can get in and get involved in that, he said, there's so much food that'll last you for lifetimes. Right. And it's so heavily guarded that... There's generators there that are all diesel generators that you just got to keep feeding diesel to, and they'll keep running and keep everything cold. And you have kitchens there that you can cook everything off of because they're the size of small, small cities. Right. Oh, my. Oh, my. Oh. That wouldn't be a bad one. I don't know if I would do that. I think I would. think so? No. I mean, I have so many places to go. I've got a pond I can fish. I I got two deer stands in my woods. I could hunt. Mm -hmm. I get turkey and everything in there. I mean, 
I got six cats. It gets a little crazy. She gets that bad. <laughs> right. Right. And then, you know, the neighbor's only 300 and something yards away. <laughs> 358 yards away to the door. <laughs> right. I'm just saying. But I don't know if I, I don't want to be that exposed. That's true. I'd yeah. want to be a small unit at that point in time. Just really heavily armed. <laughs> <laughs> So let's go ahead. We can. We can. That was a great topic. That's something I've always been dreaming of talking about because I yeah. love conspiracy theories. I want to do an episode just reading conspiracy theories and giving my opinions on them. I don't think anybody would be interested in that except for me. Maybe you. Yeah. But I'd um, watch it. I might just do it just because you then. Right. Um, let's go ahead and talk about what you do for your part-time gig or okay. for Lifeline. Yeah. You. So can you explain to people who don't understand what a Lifeline is to me or sure. to them what it is and what you do? Uh, been there, so it's Indiana University, uh, Lifeline. It's, uh, critical care transport and involves, um, multiple levels now. It used to not be, but it's, uh, six helicopters, multiple ground assets, um, throughout the state of Indiana, five bases. I currently work at Lifeline 4, which is in Columbus, Incredibly proud of that job. I love it. I just oh man, it's been said on me the whole time. It's okay. <laughs> I'm very very supported there, um, and the autonomy of what I do there is just unbelievably incredible. It is everything you would think you would do as a paramedic times two. Like you think, oh man, I'm gonna be saving some lives, right? Nope. <laughs> I'm going to go do a lift assist at the fire department. So when I go there, um, I've always wanted to do it. And it was, this was post divorce post, mm -hmm. but it, we hadn't been through cancer yet. And, um, I decided that I was like, I got to have a part-time job because I just sold this business and the house thing and everything. So I had a part-time job and I thought, man, I should apply to be a flight medic. And I always used to tell myself, I don't have enough experience. I don't have enough experience, even with the military, because they, they typically want you to have like six to eight years of experience mm -hmm. in a busy 911. And uh, I started thinking, I'm like, man, a lot of life has happened. I have 14 years in the perf at this point in time, mm -hmm. and I've been a medic since 1992 in some form or fashion. So this is in 2011, maybe. So I'll have 10 years. I'll start 10 years in April there. So I went, interviewed, real, realized I knew a little bit more than I thought, and I uh, got picked up, and I floated the state for about mm, five years between all the bases. Mm -hmm. Sometimes even worked like on 911 truck, and I've been a chase medic. I've they've They've charged me with a lot of different stuff because I had the experience like on the 911 side, and then some of the critical care paramedic stuff with the military and then and then they they basically gave me 18 months to achieve the highest paramedic certification you can have and that's flight paramedic certification so i self-studied for that for about eight months i think you were around a mm -hmm. little bit when i was studying I was. for that all the time and then i took it the first time and passed it so um been doing that now for nine years love where i work Call volume is like, especially at Iron Four, I I N for Indiana. Mm -hmm. We call it Iron Four because we're the one of the busiest bases in the Midwest. Really? Yeah. How we, many how many uh, calls will you guys get? 
Um, I know your turnaround is like three and a half, four hours or sometimes, something, something crazy. Sometimes up to four hours. depends on the flight, too. Mm-hmm. But um, Or if it's a scene, mm-hmm. then they're typically smaller, shorter. You know, if I make a jaunt from Columbus and into Edinburgh, and then I can be at the hospital in 11 minutes or something like That's that. So, cool. so the um, we have been exceptionally busy this year. And I'll use September as like a, an example. September of last year, 2020, we did, I think, 38, maybe it was 42, 42 flights in one month, just that helicopter. And that was in 2020. And this year we did almost 70 in September. Now, remember, you got to take out days where you can't fly because it's raining. Mm -hmm. Sometimes there's even wind affects it, thunderstorms, things like that. So pile in 70, almost 70 runs. Or 70 flights at three hours a piece. And these aren't just regular boring calls. Oh, no. These I mean, are that, all it extremely, happens. It, it does happen. It, oh, it does happen? It does that? happen where you get like an outlying facility or an outlying entity, mm-hmm. agency, and they call for the helicopter just because they're so far away, but it ends up just being basically an ALS call. Okay. You know, but some of the other stuff, especially in 2020, what we were doing in 2019 and 2020 was just crazy. What was some of it? Oh, crike. If, if you can crike in people. Chest tubes, um, pericardial synthesis, pulling blood off of people's heart sac because pericardial synthesis. Synthesis. Yes. Sorry. That's all right. The uh, indwelling pericardial synthesis, where you're like they're dying, they're awake, and he would look at me and be like, "I'm dying," and I would look at his pulse pressures, and I'm like, "You are dying." So I'd start pulling <laughs> blood off of his heart, and his heart would expand back out at the end and start bleeding, or not bleeding, but beating. So. And the whole time you're doing that, you're transfusing blood into people. So it's like putting it in, taking it out, put it in, taking it out, put it in, because they had no clotting factors. So you're trying to give them back clotting factors from donor blood in the air. So it's so cool. It's bad. It's <laughs> awesome. And then you know, criking people. You you train for that most of your career, and you may never do it. Mm-hmm. I've done it like three times now, <laughs> putting chest tubes in, and we're not doing that as much anymore. But you get to run the ventilator and because um, you taught me about a ventilator, you taught me peeps and pips. Oh yeah, and I actually—I mean, I'm not saying I was amazed by any means amazing at it, but I had a better understanding. Sure. And it was kind of cool, you know, coming up on a scene and you were my officer for a little while because uh, the officer I had got promoted to captain, and then I switched over to you as the rideout because right. we were in that kind of stage where they hadn't promoted somebody, so you were the rideout guy, and you taught me all about. Uh, vent units and I had to work at another station and I was over in the, the, the twos area and a lot of assisted living centers and I started working on the vent. They're like, what are you doing? I'm like, oh yeah, man, like I have an understanding about these. Like, <laughs> like I was just kind of looking at it, seeing what it needed and I was kind of having a good conversation. Now sure. I wasn't doing anything, but right. I was looking at it and I understood and had a great conversation right. with uh, the medic and I was just like, hey, you know, what's their their peeps or, or whatever it was. I don't remember. Like their pips a little high or something. I can't right. remember what it was. Pips are probably a little high. Usually pips if they're a little high. respiratory illness or whatever they get yeah. higher pits. this was also yeah. back so when anyway. i was backstepping a lot i don't do yeah, that yeah. much anymore that's just for the birds but. right <laughs> but i learned so much from you doing that yeah you i love to teach talking. that's yeah. one thing i do like to do a lot um i like to teach the fire part of it i like to teach the the medic part of it i like to teach emts to think outside of emt typical box mm-hmm. like firemen mm-hmm. right mm-hmm. so no but th- that place is just incredible it gives me so much latitude and so much autonomy because it's me 
the flight nurse, and the pilot. I have a sticker on the back of my helmet that says, nobody else is coming. It's on you. <laughs> so there's nobody else. I'm. That's it. That's the highest it can get, right? The people that are coming on the helicopter, mm -hmm. they're expected to fix stuff. Or at least make it disappear so it's not your problem anymore. <laughs> but What have been some of the most insane i hate using this because i know that when yeah because like, it dredges insane, up some memories yeah, but what has been something the most technical call that you've had where you were you were thinking outside of the box and completing tasks at such a rate that you were impressed with yourself the pericardiocentesis guy has to be at the top um i mean i don't know if that's number one but it was myself and another nurse the flight nurse who was also a paramedic who is also a paramedic lieutenant at IFD. Oh, very cool. So he and I, obviously, we speak the same language, mm -hmm. right? The vernaculars, mm -hmm. very similar. And colorful swear words. <laughs> <laughs> but, uh, you know, what we did for that guy ended up getting us enough rec some recognition. We don't thrive on the recognition because it's, there's so many spokes in that wheel, right? Mm -hmm. I mean, it's not just us. You it's know, the we, it's the guys who are on scene first. Yeah, have them on the scene first. It's it's getting them to Methodist. It's it's knowing the level of expertise that's there. It's the nursing staff. Then afterwards, it's you know the support from his family and everything else. We're just a spoke, mm -hmm. but he got recognized for what we did. We got recognized for what we did, and then we were rewarded. We got to fly the green flag into the Indianapolis 500 last year with him. That is so cool. Yeah, so you know that one's that one sticks out. A lot. And then Phil and I, I won't say his last name because I don't know if I have permission, but Phil and I got done with the run, obviously sweating, just buckets. We got kicked out of the OR because we didn't even go to the ER. I told him I wouldn't. I got on the radio. I'm like, I am going to the OR. I don't know where you want me to go, but I'm going to be in the OR in 10 minutes. We're not going to the ER. And they were like, uh, uh, uh. And I'm like, no, we're not. And it was like a real short, I said, we're basically taking blood out of his heart as fast as we're putting it in. I don't have time to go to the ER. I'll meet you at the OR. Call me back and tell me where we're going. So when we got done, Phil and I, you know, he's bought, the glasses are all fogged <laughs> up. You know, we're wearing masks at this point in time. And they're just dripping. Mm -hmm. And uh, you got your flight suit unzipped and everything just soaked. And he looks at me and he's like, do you realize what we just did? And I'm like, I don't ever want to do that again. <laughs> it was terrifying. Because when we left the facility where we picked him up, it literally was, we only have this amount of time and we're gonna, it's going to take luck and for us to hit like on all cylinders. You ready? And it's like you're getting ready to jump in cold water. You're like, go. And you move him over and we're like, ah, run into the helicopter. And we had to call the pilot, tell him, look, we're hot loading. Don't just fire it up. We need to lift as soon as we get in. And then it was just putting blood in, taking blood out. You know, and he's conscious, talking to us. And so he's he a had, nurse. Oh, so he had an understanding. What was yeah, going on. yeah. He coded twice before we even left. We kept oh getting him back. Gosh. Yeah. I remember when uh, we worked together at one of our firehouses that you came back into one shift one day and you were like, "I just stapled a dude's head." Yeah. <laughs> what happened? Do you remember when? What happened? it was just a like just a regular whatever head. trauma it was involves the skull mm -hmm. scalp. So when the avulsion of the scalp, they bleed a lot, mm -hmm. right? Yeah. So in FPC and then the CFRN, which is the certified flight nurse, if scalps are bleeding, a lot of times if you can approximate them, get them close to each other, at least they're close enough to build a clot. Mm -hmm. So we have a staple gun in the top of the airway or in the top of the bag. 
like grossly approximate everything, get it kind of close, <laughs> put it all back together. Okay, don't have to worry about that now. Let's move it on. <laughs> like a rocket guy giving a tour. Moving on. Right. That's just that's and we're so walking, cool. And we're walking. <laughs> that stuff to me is like you. That is so cool. Like just thinking outside the box of things that you can do. Mm-hmm. That that to me is just so awesome. We've had to hear and see that. I'll just give you an example. Yeah. This is the kind of autonomy and the kind of support that we have. And I won't say who the doctor was or whatever. I was working as a chase medic. And uh, it was a COPD person that needed to be intubated. We didn't have RSI drugs, but we had some drugs, right? And I'd already read, like, is there a way that I can use these drugs that I have to, like, get it at least close? Mm-hmm. So use drugs. I won't say who, where, when. Use drugs that were in there, so it's like a tool, right? I have a tool, but it's not necessarily the right tool. Mm-hmm. Ends up, the outcome is good. We get innovated, end up meeting up with another crew that has a vent. You know, we're kind of thinking outside the box now. It's not just a regular ALS ambulance. I'm knowing like where my resources mm-hmm. are and we're putting it all together. And the result is good. The doctor comes up to me. He's like, Matt, you got a minute? I was like, sure. He's, you know. Like he's my dad and we're walking and he's kind of talking under his breath. And he's like, look, you know, like when you were in the garage with your dad and like he'd get like this big nut off a long carriage bolt or something. And you knew to get the carriage bolt out, you needed a hammer, but instead he used a wrench. I was like, yeah. He goes, that's pretty much what you just did. He said, don't do it again. I'll get you the drugs you need. I said, okay. <laughs> But that's cool, thinking outside the box. I mean, yeah. that shows intelligence. That shows somebody who's... I, I think that there is a disconnect with what we do now. Full-time? Yes. Mm-hmm. Full-time now what, with what we do with guys who... There's more ways to screw in a light bulb. Yeah. That might sound stupid. No, I, I mean, I, I'm 100% I saw, with you, and I, I actually saw a guy, have a retort. No. Not a retort, but I'm, I'm going to add to your yeah. point. Well, so there's so many ways to screw in a light bulb, and there's not just one way of doing something. Right. Uh, the officer I have now has really opened my eyes, which he knows who he is. He's really opened my eyes with. Say hey, guy. Yeah. It's. Oh, I can switch my. I need. I'm so bad at this. There's, there's not only one way of doing something. There's multiple ways of doing something, mm-hmm. and we need to reach out and broaden our our, our education, our knowledge. Our expertise. Let's talk with somebody else to find out what they do. Yeah. Let's see. Weird. Let's, let's. Yeah. It's. But also, then again, like I, I want to take responsibility on that and say, well, I don't have to wait for somebody else to do it. I can do it myself. Mm-hmm. And then put an application to it. And if it doesn't work, it doesn't work. But if it works, it works. But if you're not, you're not running around telling everybody what you're doing. Nobody's gonna know. Exactly. Right. And Edison failed so many times before he made a dang light bulb. Yeah, he just found out plenty of ways not to make a light bulb. He knew <laughs> which ways didn't work, didn't he? <laughs> Right? So what's your what's your uh, your retort on that? Um, hang on a minute. Oh, yeah, this is a go. senior moment. Um, <laughs> All right, Biden. No, <laughs> you Biden it. What? Well, it's a Biden well, with Biden. When you started that about you know one way to screw in a light bulb, yeah. right? You gotta you gotta train, mm-hmm. right? And think of different ways. You gotta get influence from other different from other places, and you've got to. Um, and there was a thought that I was going off on this, and I, I don't know why I did that, but I, I think a lot of it just comes down to like 
train in different ways. Find different ways to do it. Mm-hmm. It goes down to something as simple as, oh, and have people that will support you in making those decisions and not give me a three-month process for me to change a hose load. Are you kidding me? All right, that might be a little bit in the weeds, but I don't care. But that's what I'm saying. There's so many people that, you know how you make change like that? Mm-hmm. How you get, you empower your people because that's what they do to me. Leaders, in my opinion, I knew we were going to get on this subject yes. somehow. Leaders, one of the most effective things that they've ever done for me and the most effective people that I gravitate towards are people who empower me. They're like, look, you're the right out officer. How do you want to do it? I'm just going to listen to you, and this is be some of the things that I try and, and give you as steps. Um, Staff Sergeant Sizemore. You know, we go back to Staff Sergeant Sizemore, who I think was my, my mystery caller during the cancer times. But he's the one, too. He's like, um, his, his squad leaders and everything else, you know, they, these guys are reconnaissance operators. He's like, I'm not going to tell you how to be a recon operator. You figure out what kind of recon operator you are. Figure it out. I'll help you. I'll guide you. So there is 500 ways to screw in a light bulb. But I'm not going to tell you how to do it. Show me. Mm-hmm. And then maybe we'll put them all together. We'll figure it out. Because you might come up with a different way that's better. Sure. Or quicker. Or quicker. More efficient. But the what I get at Lifeline, circle it all back, I get empowered to do things my way. And like tonight, I'm working. Mm-hmm. I'm working with one of the most senior tenured nurses in the program. Almost 30 years she's been flying. Whoa. Right? Now, would I question stuff that she does? Um, out of respect, I probably wouldn't. But you know what she still does? What do you think? How do you think we could have done that different? What do you do? And I get that out of somebody that deserves all the respect in the world and no questioning. Mm-hmm. But she still is learning. That's the way she's learning. Because she, and those are the type of people I work with there. No, no micromanagement, no putting their thumb on me, no, you know, hours that I can wear a uniform and can't wear a uniform. You know, I, I'm just saying, you know, no, some of this ma- stuff is so trivial. I, that I, does, it does make, it does make it a lot more to be pressed down, to feel censored, to feel, I don't even like using the word oppressed. But to feel like you're not letting me be creative. Right. There's no creativity into what we're doing. Right. And then to be told take, not to be creative by people who can't create. There's issues in that. And we're, and we're, being, we're talking in a very broad, broad sense. Oh, this we're is not, completely like. Yeah, this is, we're just thinking us uh, in, you know, in the weeds here. But uh, you take a, take a younger child. Because I, I just recently was one. You take you take a younger child, and you're going to go ahead and, and you're going to say you're going to do it this way, yeah. Because I've got nephews, and I've done that with them, and it's stupid to do that. But I told my nephew Hayden, I said you're going to. I shouldn't have said his name; he's underage. No. <laughs> uh, I took my nephew, and I said you're going to do it this way, and he he goes, but I don't want to do it that way. I'm like, you're going to do it this way because this is the way that works. Yeah. And he literally goes, no. <laughs> and then he went and did it his way, and I'm like, and I thought about it, and I'm like, man, I was kind of an a hole. I. Yeah, it worked better. The yeah. way he came up with worked better than the way I did. So, once I kind of released some of that that stress and said, "Okay, I don't have I don't have my hands in on what he's doing." Yeah, 
I'm letting him figure it out. And he figured out a better way of doing it. Sure. We were playing a little simple game at their house. But that kind of taught me, like, okay, so what about at work? How can I apply that at work? Sure. When I, I got a new guy with us, and I'm, I try to let him do something, he may do it the right way, might do it the wrong way. But Two points. Yes. What, what Questions, points? actually. Yes. One, do you ever turn that back and look at yourself and say, maybe that's a problem with me? Oh, yes. Because, like, this, that's what I've learned, right? Mm-hmm. Maybe... Maybe at home, maybe as a child, maybe in your professional career, whatever. And then the other thing that you can ask yourself is, can I identify it next time that happens? I hope I do. Right. So I have to literally, as an indirect and direct leader, right, (laughs) have to constantly evaluate what I'm doing. Because the people that, if you're good at that, if you're good at, like, empowering Mm. your people, making them feel like they've got not only skin in the game, but they're going to be responsible if it doesn't work, right? That is incredibly empowering. And that takes some of the stress and burden off of me. Mm -hmm. But you know what it also, it'll do. It'll attract people that have similar like and Mm like-minded and those people, they'll work for you. The guys I got right now, I won't name who they are. They, we have such a respect for each other because they know that I will follow them anywhere and they will follow me anywhere. Mm-hmm. Everything is democratic until it can't be, right? It gets to a point where I have to eventually make a decision. And, yes. and if yeah. please just respect me enough that just do it that way for now, and then we can talk about it later. But if you're able to question yourself and say, man, can I not do that the next time? And then why did I do that? Is that a, is that a me issue? And I think that sooner you start inwardly reflecting and then if you can put in like a little check valve, like, okay, I'm doing it again. I can't do it again. I'm starting to get closer to that relief, that, that, that point where it's an explosion of a, like a blevy. Yeah. I'm getting to that point where I'm about to explode. Right. I'm about to be too controlled. You're going to do it this yes. way. Well, I mean, obviously like, you know, you could even use it for marriage. You can even, use, I mean, I'm married. Absolutely. And my wife moved into at that point, my house. Yeah. And she, she can she's probably listening right now, and she'll she'll probably barge in here if I say something that is completely wrong and incorrect. But <laughs> it's her job. It is her job. But it's when she's the bear, actually, it's a heavy cross, <laughs> a two hundred and forty five pound cross right. right here. Um, but when she moved in at that time, I was telling her like, "This is how it is. This is how I've been doing it. This is how it's been working for me the past three years, and this is how you'll do it." I quickly realized. That's not how it works. Mm-mm. It's a relationship. Yes. I see the relationship as the firehouse, as in your personal relationship. You have to let go of the reins a bit to let her. I, I've, I've let her uh, have the reins here at the house on certain things. There are things that I'm like, hey, this is my decision. But you also, I, I come to you to ask you, what do you think about this? Uh-huh. This is what my call will be after we talk. You mean this like, whole room. You're, like you're communicating? Yes. Like you're open, sending a very, message, you're looking for correct. feedback, you're like correct. You're not, very you're open just, communication. Yeah, this whole weird. room was all her idea. Was it? Yeah. She did everything in this room and obvi- I mean obviously I couldn't have done this type of design, but she it was open communication. she said, Hey, I wanna try something. If you like it, you like it. Right. I liked it. Mm-hmm. I let go of the reins. Yeah. Making calls around the house. Then then I've learned to do that like when I'm in the rideout spot, like making certain calls. And then I turn to the guy that's driving me who he and I are on the – I think he's a little bit more intelligent than I am, especially with that kind of stuff because he trains 
an insane insane amount and he's also got his hands on so many things i'm like yeah. what do you think bud and he's he's got more time on than me yeah hey man what do you think you were an officer at another department yeah and well he then he he's returned back with saying well you're the right out i'm like yeah but you also got good experience at another department sure. i'm gonna utilize that i, I, even I said, can still learn yeah i've even said that to the new guy behind me um is i won't say his name but uh, made it i was about to make a call and i said what do you think bud and he's like uh mm. you're you're the boss i'm like okay yeah <laughs> you right. made a call like, right but also it gets a different set of eyes on it he mm -hmm. might see something that i didn't see yeah but it's that open communication it's it's talking with your guys to see what works. i think that that happens a lot more though in the in operations like in the line on yeah. the line companies like the guys that are actually out there because now it's so much it is a lot better i will say that yes. the fact that the it has kind of settled down with the groups that are still they're working with each other all the time, mm -hmm. and we're starting to build those relationships. But we're still being at the top. There's still a lot to learn. Yes, and I would about, say that's I'd say it's about everywhere. It is. Yeah. Now I've worked for a couple pretty good people, as as far as like the top top like one. Oh, okay, I got you. Yeah, I've worked for some pretty good people back in the maybe two, but <laughs> the. Um, those relationships can't be taught to people that have never been in those relationships. Mm -hmm. They've always been in a role where they're putting their thumb on people or, or whatever. They've never done what we do mm -hmm. or at the pace that we're doing it right now. I mean, we're, we're killing it. Yeah. We're growing. Right. At our, at our specific department, we're growing. Yes. Yes. So that gets frustrating because we've developed these things where, Hey, I'm, I appreciate your input, even though, I basically raised you, mm -hmm. but you still have learned different things than I have. You have opportunities to go different places and do, and learn from different p people. Mm -hmm. You know, FDTN never existed before, right? You guys get those opportunities to Ooh. do that. And you bring stuff back, just like at Recon. You bring stuff back from every class that you go to, right? Mm -hmm. Not everybody there is a jump guy. Not everybody there is a dive guy. But you're getting ready to go dive school or something like that. I, I got stuff I can tell you. You go to FDTN, you come back, and this, you know, I'm, I'm trying to be crusty, you know, guy just buying my time. No, you still got stuff to show me. Mm -hmm. So when we go out and train, I got an idea about how I want to do this. Say I want to take a hose line and load the room, right? You're like, hey, I just learned this the other day. Check this trick out. There's guys that have got all kinds of things to bring to the table. Yeah. And that's what makes that relationship so, much spe so special, knowing that you trust the guy with your life, He's got a completely different experience in the way that he's done this as a professional. And then we can always learn from each other. It's crazy. It's great. Like my job, where I'm at in the rank structure and where I'm at, especially station location, <laughs> is like the best job I've had since I've been in the, in the fire service. So much fun. See, I said something positive. Yeah, that's rare. <laughs> Stop. Yeah. <laughs> well, staying positive is a, is a huge deal. Like, did I go off track there? No, no. I don't think you went off track. Okay. Why? Did that make sense? Yeah, that makes sense. Sometimes I have to check because no, I, it, I it makes perfect sense. No, this is the perfect place to go rambling. But okay. a lot of this stuff comes down to we can only do so much per organization. Mm -hmm. Each department's the same. You know, not each department's the same. Each department has their issues that are of the same value. Oh yeah, for sure. And it's also on how do how do you deal with that as a 
black helmet. How do you deal with that as a red helmet? Obviously, I'm a black helmet, so I, I don't understand a lot of the same stressors that red helmets and, and stuff but, like that get because they've obviously got more responsibility to deal with and more people that help that hold them accountable because of that responsibility that they're taking on. But it's also on how do you look, what is your outlook on what the issues are per your department? Oh, wait, that, that switched. What do you yeah. mean? My outlook on, okay. Just give me a little bit of an explanation. Okay. Uh, let's see. This is, this is an example. <laughs> this is an example. It's because it's the first thing that popped into my mind. It's okay. an example. Let's say you have an administration, complete dog trash. Yes. Okay. Yeah. They, none of them were, were, were ever firemen and they were all, uh, kissing ass the entire time and that's how they got into their positions is it's an example but that's how they got their positions and they're coming in and and they're hardly tucking their shirts in and they're coming in and they're throwing rulers at you telling you that you're not abiding by the protocols or your guidelines and they're out there violating their own you as a lieutenant can't do as much as what you would like to do by restructuring that part of the administrative administration yeah so changing your outlook on things in the time meaning time being of trying to fix that structure yeah. slowly but surely but changing your outlook do you think can have a positive effect on yourself or your men i think you can control what you can control at the immediately mm -hmm. right if somebody came to me one of the guys and said hey what do you think about? I would say I would say to all the black guy, hat guys, look to your senior guys first, right? You got barn bosses, mm -hmm. and if you're not getting that answer, and he's not coming to me or, or something and saying, "Hey, look, I'm noticing this. What do you think?" I mean, am I out of line here? I would probably say, "Look, let's stay inward for now. Keep it here. We can complain. I will try not to complain down. I'll let you complain up." I'll try not to. I'm not like saying I won't. Private Ryan. Huh? Like in Saving Private Ryan, the movie with Tom Hanks. Right, crying. right. Go up, they don't go down. And then you would hope you would get that kind of answer. But if you don't, the next time you bid, go to a guy that gives you that answer, right? Mm -hmm. Get away from the people that are saying, just do it. Just do it. Mm -hmm. Because I would say in the time being, you just do it, I'll address it. And you got to have enough. To, if you're charged with this position... You would hope that the people above you, you could go to them and be like, look, if you're going to keep throwing a ruler at me and you're going to tell me to tuck my stuff in or whatever I'm doing, you do the same thing. You lead, which will in turn trickle down and I can enforce it, mm -hmm. right? But if you're not and you're just going to be do as I say, not as I do, we're going to internalize and you'll never hear a peep out of us. <laughs> we'll show up, we'll kick a whole bunch of booty and we're going home, Yeah. right? Besides that, don't ask for my input. They don't want it anyway. Oh. Who would? Right. <laughs> I don't. Want it. But I would I'm say that you know you you get up into that position you've got to you're you're doing both. Mm -hmm. You're still trying to take care of them, make sure their mentals is good, <laughs> <laughs> make sure they're right on the right track. They still feel like they're being empowered to do their job. We've given them the tools you're supposed to, and let, I'd say let me handle it. Mm -hmm. And if you're going to be an officer, sometimes you got to have those difficult conversations. Nobody wants to have them. But that's what that's what I'm here for, right? I take care of my guys. This has got me thinking about what we talked about earlier with the greatest generation. 
and the types of men that they were back then mm -hmm. versus today. Mm -hmm. My opinion, right? My theory. Men were were men back in the day, back when, you know, Titanic, I'd use this example yesterday as a joke, back in the Titanic, uh, all the women and children on the boats first. Blah, blah, blah. Dudes, then, you're going to die. Uh, dudes, you're going to die. <laughs> <laughs> Bill Burr's got a great joke about it. <laughs> Bill Burr's got a great joke about it. He said, I'm going to die with all these sweaty, nasty dudes. <laughs> yeah. Um, he says much worse stuff than that. I that was say. chivalrous, though. It was chivalry. Yeah. But back then, I've always heard that men, you have a job. You will abide by that job, and you will die by that. You will die by this is what your core values are because it is it is God, it is your family, and then it is your work. Mm -hmm. And then men would hold God as number one, treating those the two things, treating treating others as you want to be treated, and you, you love God first. Right. They would do that, and then in return, how they're leading would be that same way. Sure putting God first and then treating others as you want to be treated. Right. And then I w you would see most point, most times you would see men doing that in those positions of leadership. Yeah. And then it just falls into place. Mm -hmm. But at first it is very difficult to get the, co the people to comply with what you're asking. Sure. But how do you get that buy-in at that point? So if they we're were doing a similar, now, we're doing a similar thing. I mean, you're looking at God unit, core right mm -hmm. it's we do everything for the right reasons the unit is our family 33 percent of our life and then the department is second the third i'm taking care of my guys first i'm trying to treat them how they would want to be treated i'm mm -hmm. taking care of them i'll answer to whoever i have to to do these two other things and i it's been lost like you're saying i mean there's, there's so many people that want to put the core first, mm -hmm. then the unit, and nobody cares about doing the right thing by their guys or you know what's godly. Mm -hmm. Would you agree? I would, I would agree with that. Yeah, it's you're putting your you're putting your eggs in different baskets that shouldn't be in those baskets. Mm -hmm. you're, you're putting values first that shouldn't be, like finances, the security of like I've, I've extra pay, extra pay, right? That my. I'm very. I have a very different opinion on a lot of this kind of stuff mm -hmm. because I don't care about rape. I don't want to ruin it for anybody else. I personally don't care about raises. I personally don't care about a lot of that financial stuff. If, yeah. I, want, if I want to go be a millionaire, I'm not going to do what I do. True. I will obviously quit. With, if I wanted to make a lot of money, yeah. I would quit my job and go do three other things that I know I can do right now that would make me at least almost twice as much money for one of the smaller jobs. Mm -hmm. I know I can do that, right? Will I do that? I don't think so. Uh, it's a it's a better balance. <laughs> it's the way you're set up now. The way I'm set up now is an, is an extremely awesome balance. But I'm doing something that fulfills my heart. That, that sure. makes me feel good. That I'm doing something. I'm helping somebody. Right. Yeah, just last day we went into someone's house. Beautiful home, by the way. And they had a, an alarm going off in their house, and it was driving them crazy. We came in. Such a simple thing what it was. It's just a simple carbon monoxide detector that was plugged into an outlet that just kept beeping. They couldn't figure it out. And that made me feel good. I'm like, hey, I, was, I unplugged it. My engine needs batteries changed. And then they changed the batteries. I'm like, okay. Like, so I'd be the guy behind you rolling my eyes. I'd be like, oh, my God, why are we here? <laughs> exactly. But like, it that, takes all kinds. It takes all kinds. Yes. It, but in my mind, I was like, man, I got for one, I got to see a beautiful home on the inside. Yeah. 
too, it helped them out. Sure. It relieved some of their stress and anxiety. Yeah. And if that's all I get to do, that's all I get to do. Yeah. But how do we get that buy-in? I've had this talk with uh, Sean Grass in one of the pre previous episodes. You have to have that. I buy love in. Sean. He taught me in, in the academy. He's he's awesome. Yeah. He's he's a heart. He's hardcore. Yeah. To me, he's he's the I think in my eyes he's the definition of what a fireman is a, a, among other men as well that I work with and doesn't forget as a chief. Yes, yes. Uh, I forgot what I was getting to at that point. What was I talking about in the beginning part of that? You're looking for buy-in. The buy-in. What was it before that? <laughs> <laughs> hey, my caffeine's running out. Uh, I'm lost. <laughs> uh, me too. Hey, let's move on to the next subject. Is there another subject? Oh, yeah, there is one more subject. I mean, here's the thing. We can go as long as we want. We're at, we're at three hours right now. I'm good with going for a little bit longer if you want. We can. I'm just going to take my son to lunch before I lay down for a nap. It's 1250. Is it? <laughs> Damn. Let's go. All right. Well, all right. I told you I'd do this, so I'm going to give oh. you all I got. Oh, no, dude. Then six more hours. No. No, oh my God. <laughs> no. I didn't expect it to last this long, to be honest. I really didn't. I think I thought you would have lost interest at hour one and a half. One. Well, I mean, as long as I can weave it around and not get myself in trouble. Mm. What? I don't think we're out. I don't think we're in the weeds yet. No, we're perfectly fine. And if they, they won't, nobody will watch it anyways. Nobody, <laughs> nobody yet for that kind of culture would watch this. Right. I've been sending it. They don't want done talking so mental illness we talked about this a little bit earlier you've got a passion about it can you explain to me or talk to me about some of the basic indicators of somebody that has got ptsd from the military something that family members will see that'll notice after someone comes home from being overseas uh yeah i can actually wrap this into the fire department a little bit yeah, too perfect. um so um the biggest thing that a lot of the health care and mental health care advocates, especially through social media and everything else, I follow a couple of different people, like one of them is veterans supporting veterans. Mm -hmm. And um, there's a, I could name off probably five or six if I got into my phone and saw like what my mm -hmm. what was trending. Um, these guys are coming back from arguably the harshest fighting we've ever done as a nation, with the exception of maybe some Vietnam, some of the conflicts in Vietnam. And uh, and it drawn out for so many years. I mean, some of these kids were born when it all started and still went over there, where they were old enough to go over there. <clears throat> so there's a huge swath of people that are being affected by this. Now, mine is from a kind of isolated event almost, right? Whether it be from the training that got us to that point or the actual theater of operation when we were there. These guys are coming back and they're on these deployments sometimes for 13, 16, 17 months. And then they're coming back for a little while and then they may change units and go back. Or they may come back and be home for a couple of years, up to four sometimes, and then they went back. So, you know, the, it lasted for 20 years, two decades. So they're. That's a brotherhood, probably your building that's stronger than anything we could talk about. The uh, they come back and it, it, they shut it off. They they're expected to shut it off. The VA and the military, as you leave, is terrible about telling you what to expect, what's going to happen. Uh, there's no like there used to be, and I don't know if there's there still maybe, but there was 
there were times where they would give you classes and things like, hey, this is how you do an interview, or this is what you wear, right? Because mm -hmm. all guys come back, and they, they're still a part of the military part of them that just won't die. I mean, I wore combat boots for five years probably after I came back because that's just what you did. But, mm -hmm. but there is, that's all gone. That fraternity, that expectation to perform, holding others accountable, being able to just say, hey, what are you doing? You know what I mean? You're a bag of poo. You can't say that to some people now, right? So they can't reassimilate. They can't get jobs. They, a lot of them have got demons they're dealing with from things that they've seen or done, and they turn to alcohol. I mean, I know a few guys that are in the veterans serving veterans group that are, were heroin addicts right after they came back. A lot of them are injured. They're on pills. You know, they looked at different things. They end up homeless. So some of the key indicators definitely, and like most recently, you know, a guy came back from the military a couple of years ago and he was on, he's on my engine for a little while. And uh, I just sat him down and talked to him. I'm like, look, this is going to be hard. It's, you've got to reach out. I told him, I'm like, if I see you're, you're, you're drinking way too much or you're partying way too much or, you know, I see some indicators and I'm going to say something, I'm going to do something. Um, there's a lot of domestic abuse that comes with these guys coming back home. You can't turn that off. I mean, then you're trying to live with a person that you've, you know, you haven't seen sometimes for years at a, absent for years at a time. And, uh, Mostly the addiction and just the, the, you look, when PTSD kind of started coming out, a lot of doctors would misdiagnose it as bipolar because you have these giant mood swings. You're like you're, you're, you're depressed and then bam, you're manic and then you're depressed and then you're manic. And that's what you're needing is like that, that serotonin reuptake inhibitor to like to kind of level out your, cause you're not going from norepinephrine to serotonin, norepinephrine to serotonin. So you got to watch for mood swings, substance abuse, domestic abuse, uh, just and it's joblessness, multiple jobs. They're those guys are they just can't come back and turn it off, and that happened with some of the my generation, but it wasn't as nor no way near as bad as what it is now, and I can't. Can't also can't think about the tremendous disservice that we did to the Vietnam veterans by not recognizing that. Those guys, they have nowhere to turn. The nation was mad at them. So, well, there was protests. I saw. I've seen videos. Obviously, it wasn't around. Yeah. I saw videos of people protesting when they were coming back. Baby killers, calling them baby killers. Yeah. I couldn't imagine. Mm -hmm. I couldn't imagine going through that and coming back home trying to serve your country and doing, doing things that are are challenging to yourself to sure. even think about what you did and then be be coming home and being told that you're a murderer. It still happens now. I mean, I'm, I follow a bunch of different vets that come back that are trying to do mental health advocate mm -hmm. advocacy. On, I do have a TikTok just because I, I watch <laughs> I watch my kids sometimes, and yeah. then there's some funny people on TikTok. Oh my, my favorite thing to do is to read the comments. Right. Well, the, <laughs> what I was getting at is I do read the comments, and there's some of these guys that are coming back trying to be mental health advocates, and uh, they're getting called names. Wow. All this other stuff, you know, people just keyboard warriors. Yeah. But what I was going to also say and wrap this into it, obviously, you know that I had a significant um, 
presence and part to play in Austin. Yes. I was seeing the same things. Now, I don't know if it was impacted from his childhood. I would have hoped to not assume that because, I mean, he's got good parents. Mm -hmm. um, I don't know if it was the job. I don't know if it was just him not being able to cope, but all the same stuff. Fighting, mood swings, addiction, mm -hmm. um, unconventional means of coping, you know, accidents, all these other things. And I, I was picking up on it, but my hands kind of get tied when you're in policy. Not, you know, as a not at, reaching out as a friend. I tried to do both, but I saw a lot of the same things, and that dredged up a bunch of memories. Um, so it's not just the military. That's what I'd say. Is like you know, me being a mental health advocate, I, I would have to say that you know it's responsibility of all of us to either ask for help or notice when somebody does need help. The fire department is not what it used to be. I mean. The world is violent, and we're doing more runs than we've ever done, and there's a depravity in society right now that I think wears on you more than even the images that you see. I tell people a lot of the time when I walk away, it won't be, the things that will bother me won't be, you know, seeing guys burn up in cars or pulling bodies out of house fires or whatever like that. It's going to be the fact that I was just constantly immersed in the human condition for so many years that I've just, I'm going to get to a point where I'll be like, okay, that's enough peopling. I think I've done peopling. <laughs> and when I retire, I think it's going to be that way. Really? Yeah. But the, the whole thing is there's indicators for either in the fire service or in the military. You just got to pay attention. And most of the time, those people just need an advocate. Like, hey, this is what happened. I went through this. I'm going to tell you the steps that I took. I'm not telling you how to screw mm -hmm. the light bulb in, but these are the steps that I took. So for somebody who, let's say, there's a person that's listening to this and they're noticing some of these same mannerisms and routines that you just explained, yeah, how can they go about talking to that person? If it's which, a military guy, they say? Yes. I mean, more times than not, they're going to appreciate you more for just coming right at them. Out of the fire service, I don't know. I mean, there's not the same world experiences than, mm -hmm. in that. You know, they're probably going to get mad or... I don't know, cry wolf, cry victim. A lot of military guys, I mean, you go right at them. Look, man, I don't know what's going on. I'm going to put this out there as a soft tool for you to use. I'm noticing some stuff's going on. I want to be the guy you contact if you're ready to talk about that. Mm -hmm. But if it keeps going on, I'm coming back. And just be that guy. I, at that point in time, it's just like, you know, we talked about boys. Mm -hmm. Give me guidance. Just give me an avenue, Right. Open the gate. And once the gate's open, then it's up to you. <laughs> but you do until I yank your ass in the gate. <laughs> right? Yeah. Oh, definitely. Right. So I think that that's probably about all i got to say about that. <laughs> Man, I... Matt, I really appreciate you coming on and just sure. talking to sharing some of your knowledge. I hope I get to have you on again at some other point. Yeah. But, dude, this was great. Thank you so much. You're welcome. Hey, you stuck around to the very end of the video. I really appreciate you guys taking the time and listening to our little conversation we had. I had so much fun talking with Matt in this episode. I hope that you guys enjoyed listening as well. 
If you did, let me know. Leave a little comment, like the video, subscribe to that channel again, and also hit that notification bell. I hope you guys have a blessed day. Thank you so much.